tonight we pay tribute to a man who handed out a right royal thrashing in 2017. Jonathan Ray, MBE. Welcome to Bite Live. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 40 of Bike Live on Motorsport 101, and we have reached season review time uh, here on Bike Live. This week, we are heading to the two Superbike Championships that we've covered all year round uh, here on Bike Live to review the British Superbike Championship, a season which had so many twists and turns in it before the showdown even got on door, and then an amazing sting in the tail right at the end at Brand Satch. A shaky burn made it six British Superbike titles and retained his title for the very first time. Um, a season that ended with one of the abiding images of the season as Shaky Byrne and Leon Haslam showed the ultimate act of sportsmanship. Uh, we'll also, as mentioned up the top, review the World Superbike Championship of this season as Jonathan Ray absolutely demoralised the opposition with a record-breaking third consecutive title and the highest points tally ever seen in a British Superbike season. Uh, we'll also begin our look ahead to 2018. Testing is underway. Jonathan Ray has already put his uh, towel on the sunbed for next season's championship. We'll tell you all about that midway through this show. We'll also talk about all the racing that took place last weekend because amazingly there is still some of it going on. Uh, the Macau GP took place last weekend and the final round of the FIM CEV championships, which of course includes the Moto3 Junior World Championship. We'll also bring in news that um, focuses on next year, including a constructor already pulling the plug on their Moto2 concern. More on that to come. Um, joining me then for this week's show as we look back on a superbike season, um, it's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Hiya. Um, turns out we're in season review period already, which means, God, we're coming towards the end of, this, the end, the end of motorsport <laughs> season already. This, this it, it feels like yesterday we were previewing World Superbikes already. It's kind of bonkers that, you know, the last, gosh, nine months have moved so quickly. It's been, it's been ridiculous, to say the least. But, uh, yep, here we are. Let's... Let's talk about Jonathan Ray MBE and Shaky Burn destroying us all. Yeah, uh, it just kind of goes to show just how fun a season it's been across all the different yeah. championships um, that it's passed so quickly. Incidentally, we will be reviewing the MotoGP season on next week's show. Um, so if you're looking forward to us uh, shooting the breeze for a couple of hours on everything that's happened in the MotoGP season in 2017, we might need more than two hours in truth. Um, that yes. is next week for episode 41 uh, of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. Um, the places you can find us between now and then, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101 if you want to follow us and like us on there. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at motorsport underscore 101 um, or at harrison101hd, depending on which account Dre is using at the time. Um, you can also um, follow us on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 for all our various updates on our YouTube channel. Our website is motorsport101.net. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, you can do so over on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. All levels of early access are, um, earned you early access to this week's episode of Motorsport 101. Episode happy 113. Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> episode 113, um, which, um, amongst other things, looks ahead to, um, mercifully, the final round of the Formula 1 season <laughs> this weekend. Yes, definitely. Um, like uh, spoiler alert for those guys that are in German Sport One Hundred One, we're all just kind of deflated at this F One season. <laughs> yes. Really, it's like can we just get this over with now? Like we're just we're just kind of tired of everything, really. So we previewed that and some more 
unsavory comments from Lewis Hamilton. Um, we obviously we talked about Macau as well and how crazy that was. Fernando Alonso randomly showing up in the WEC to continue his Triple Crown adventures. The end of Formula 8 3.5. So Formula 8 V8 3.5 as well in the history of that. And yeah, a bunch of other stuff as well. And of course your mailbag as well in that one. We actually somehow went an, like two hours, ten minutes yes. on this one. Like, I Don't ask me how we did that, given that it was almost purely a news-based version of the show and then none of the big three in there. So don't ask me how that, how that happened, but we did. So if you'd like to hear me, RJ, and King ramble for basically 130 minutes about a bunch of stuff in motorsport, feel free to tune in. Absolutely. Motorsport 101, episode 113, available to listen to um, right now. Um, right then, let's crack on with our two-part review of this year's Superbike season. And we're going to start with the World Superbike Championship um, of 2017, which began back in February um, at Phillip Island. Um, back in February, Dre, we previewed this season with the brilliant Greg Haynes, who, who joined us on the show for our season preview um, back in February. Um, and had so much excitement, as always, over a new season, um, which began in Phillip Island. And I don't know what it is about Phillip Island. We've said in the past that it's impossible to have a bad race there. Um, the two World Superbike races, once again, were outstanding. Um, yeah. and in many ways kind of gave us a little bit of false hope as to how good the season was going to be. <laughs> it did, didn't it? <laughs> it's like, hey guys, we know Jonathan Ray won, but like, Davis kept it close, you Alex know. Lowe's was up there. Lowe's was up there. He led in race two for a good while, you know. Maybe we got something here. Mm. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't ready to be, but as I said, Philip Island produces this sensational habit of just producing fantastic, close motorcycle. It seems to nullify advantages that bikes may have on the circuit. It's really a rider's track, and um, yeah, despite the fact that, hey, it gave us a little bit of false hope in a vacuum, those two opening races were fantastic. And remember, it was the first race with the reverse grid rules in place, so we were all, there was always going to be a level of intrigue regarding how that was going to play out. And we had guys like Eugene Laverty up the front very briefly, and Lowe's was up there for a good while as well. Um, so, yeah, like, we like we thought, okay, opening impressions, not so bad. And again, like, Philip Island, again, had many a numerous clash. We had, we had Melandry and uh, and Lowe's clashing in there as well. Um, it was a it was a fun opening weekend for sure. Mm, it was a funny weekend. Yeah, I was going to mention the uh, the new reverse grid rules when we got to uh, Thailand round two because uh, that was the first real showcase of uh, just how incredible Jonathan Ray was under those regulations. Mm. Uh, but we'll get onto that in a moment. Um, but yeah, a fantastic weekend. Jazz Davies finishing second to Jonathan Ray in both races, and we kind of thought at that time, Dre, that this was a a, a glimpse of a new Chas Davies because of course a year prior to that at Phillip Island, Chas Davies had the beating or certainly had the opportunity to beat Jonathan Ray in either race, but through up, up the scenery, uh, it's particularly in race two on the final lap, he crashed it down at the Honda Hairpin, trying to beat Jonathan Ray to victory, rather than taking the 20 points on offer. Chaz Davies was going to do that at Phillip Island. He took two seconds um, to leave Phillip Island, just 10 points behind. Um, mm. Some fantastic um, showings further down the field, as you mentioned. Um, Tom Sykes getting a rare podium in Phillip Island in race one, although he couldn't quite crack the reverse grid in race two. Melandry, a first podium since returning to the series um, in that second race. He was, of course, joining Chaz Davies at the Aruba Ducati team with Davide Giuliano 
moving to the British Championship. Alex Lowe's with a brace of fourth places. He'd get used mm -hmm. to fourth place as the year went on. We also saw Jamie Forres and Leon Camier impressing over the course of that weekend too. Uh, but of course, it was another Johnny Ray double from the pole position. And this is one thing that we saw in the early stages of the season, Dre, both in Phillip Island and in Thailand. A new feature of Jonathan Ray this season. He wasn't just the fastest man in the world over race distance. He was even beating <laughs> Tom Sykes to Super Poles this year. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's like, it's, I was watching that qualifying session and I was just sitting there going, uh-oh. <laughs> like, if he's beating, if he's beating Tom Sykes in qualifying sessions now, then there is no hope for anybody. Yeah, what like, else has Sykes got? It's like, Sykes, that's the one thing you have over this man. You're, you're like, you're excellent over a lap. You can't be doing this. And, well, next thing you know. <laughs> yeah. So, Jonathan Ray starts Thailand race one from pole and like the, the ominous wave of inevitability hit over World Superbikes quite quickly. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, it was a slightly bizarre qualifying session, of course, in um, in Thailand because, of course, the Super Pole qualifying tyres never made it to the Chang circuit. They, uh, they, were, they were stuck a, in transit. <laughs> they had to qualify on race tyres, which certainly swung the balance towards Johnny Ray, but he was so much quicker than everyone else in that Grand Prix week, in that Superbike weekend anyway, that it probably didn't matter. We had a brilliant battle, incidentally, between... Tom Sykes and Marco Melandri on the final lap of both races in Thailand, with Sykes beating Melandri at the final corner of both races um, to take what was third in race one behind Chaz Davies, who took second, and second in race two with Chaz Davies uh, having problems. Um, but before we get on to those problems that Chaz Davies had during race two, this was, as I mentioned, the first real showcase of the reverse grid, because in, even in Phillip Island, it's such an easy circuit to follow around. You have such big groups that... Even if you started ninth on the grid, that's not really the handicap it is at other circuits. Right. Um, but around Thailand, we thought, here we go. This is the first real acid test of the new reverse grid format. And Jonathan Ray instantly made a complete mockery of it. So it's like, so yeah, so about those rules, um, nothing. <laughs> you might as well not have bothered World Superbikes. Yeah, like, if I remember correctly, Jonathan Ray was third by the time lap two started. Yeah. Spoiler alert, this becomes a trend. Um, yes. But, um, yeah, like it, it showcased that, that Jonathan Ray had a level of aggression um, when overtaking people on track that just nobody had an answer for. And, again, like he was leading the race by lap three, and he was gone by that point. It, it just didn't matter. It basically um, exposed a new level of Jonathan Ray's ability where not only was he the fastest in clear air, not only could he win a pack race or even qualify on pole, on top of this now, he was also able, and this is a critical factor because of the race two effect of the reverse grids, he was able to get to the front extremely quickly. And that was something that nobody else, bar maybe Chaz Davis in the, in the championship, could do all year long. Hmm. Even when you look at guys like Chaz Davis and Tom Sykes, they had races where they were able to get to the front in race two. Um, but they also had, in equal measure, races where they failed to do so. Jonathan Ray was able to get to the front in race two on every single occasion with the exception of Magni Kaur, where he tripped over Eugene Laverty um, early in that race, without which he might have got to the front in that one too. Um, Jonathan Ray was pretty much peerless in these race two formats. And it just goes to show that whatever regulation changes you throw at a, at a championship to try and close the field up or try and flip the field on its head, it's usually the best riders and best teams that adapt to it quickest, um, as Jonathan Ray proved. Um, and as I mentioned, Chas Davis in the early stages of the season was doing the clever championship game of finishing second and maximizing his points on circuits where the Kawasaki was stronger. He'd followed Jonathan Ray's first three wins of the season with three second places. Um, but the karma championship mindful Chas Davies only lasted three races, Drake's in race four of the season, race two in Thailand, 
Chaz Davies goes down trying to race his own teammate. The red mist descended. It descended quickly. Oh, Chaz, what were you doing? It was like it was, it, 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 it was a crash into turn four down the hill, mm. and I, I remember what I, I still distinctly remember this one. And I remember watching, and I was going, "Well, Chaz, like, why are you racing him so hard? Like, it's uh, it's the early going. Like, Melandry is in a good position. Like." What's the rush here? Like, Jonathan Rill's already a couple of seconds down the road, but it's when you probably weren't going to win this one. You'd already had a good trend of just following Jonathan home and basically minimizing any damage that was available. So I don't know why Chas felt the need to race his teammates so hard. And then he makes a silly mistake on the, on the exit of turn, on turn three, just loses the back and completely slides out from underneath him. Um, very bizarre accident. And just one that just, you know, seemed a little bit unnecessary. And again... A bit of a running theme for Chaz at times. Mm, yeah, it was. And um, it, yeah, as you say, a running theme. And we kind of, it led to us asking the question in mid-season, didn't it? Where we saw him have um, similar instances at Aragon, which is the next round that we're going to come to. It happened again at Mizano late in the race. Um, it happened in Portimao as well late in the race. Where I think we've almost got to arrive at the point where we've just got to accept that this is Chaz Davies. And accept him for what it is. That he's not going to be a rider that's able to perform these levels of consistent runs that Jonathan Ray has where unless his bike fails on him he finishes every race on the podium Chance Davis just doesn't seem to have that level of consistency in it he's always riding too close to the limit to me yeah that, that that seems to be his biggest problem it's that yeah you're right he has I don't know how much of this is him and how much of it is the bike mm. but by any measure it seems that like Jonathan Ray can always ride within his limit he doesn't have rider mistakes um, he's not really had one probably the entire two or three year of his championship run where any DNFs have come from mechanical issues with Jonathan Ray. He doesn't seem to make major mistakes. He's had a couple of near misses here and there, but nothing that's going to cost him any sort of real championship position of, of, of his own doing. He always seems to know where the line is and not and when not to cross it. Where, where Jazz Davis seems he's always over the line and having to ride at 110%. So you know, try and reel Jonathan in, and that, and when obviously when you're riding that hard, you're more prone to making mistakes, and that's I think been the story of Chaz the last couple of years, where on sheer ability alone, he does have the potential to beat Jonathan four times out of ten. The problem is is that he can't do it consistently enough, and hey, maybe the risk reward of maybe getting five extra points for the win. Whereas instead you crash and you lose 25 to, to Jonathan Ray, it probably just isn't worth it. No, it isn't, and. Uh... Chaz Davies at this point, having finished sixth, he was rescued in that second racing time by a red flag midway through the race when Lorenzo Savadori um, suffered an oil leak, which caused him high siding out of the race, dropping oil down at the final corner. The race was red flagged and restarted, um, which essentially rendered the original reverse grid pointless because the new grid was set by on the, the race order. Chaz Davies then got the chance to come from the back of the grid and finish sixth, um, but he'd already hemorrhaged even more points to Jonathan Ray. He was 30 points behind after four races of the season. Um, and if it wasn't already apparent just how dominant Jonathan Ray was going to be this year, I think we were all left in absolutely no doubt by the time we'd arrived at Aragon. What we thought was going to be a banker Chaz Davies weekend. And as early as race one of the weekend, Ray, Chaz Davies leading the race, Jonathan Ray was going nowhere and the alarm bells were already ringing at Ducati. Perhaps it was those alarm yeah, bells uh, that sent Chaz Davies crashing out a lap from home. Yeah, it's like, what the hell is this green guy doing behind me? Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, no matter which way 
slice it. This was this was bad news for, for like like by any measure. This is this this is a bank around for Jazz. He was probably expected to dominate and and um you know to you know take all fifty points if available to him because again he completely dominated here last year. But this time Jonathan was able to stay with him. And again, Jonathan was leading that game. Uncharacteristic jazz mistake on the final corner. It didn't work out for him. Loses the back of the bike. He's gone. And there's a 25 point swing to Jonathan Ray in front of him. And that's when you pretty much knew that this series might already be over five races in. If jazz just lost 25 points on one of his banker rounds. Yeah. Jonathan Ray, um, Five out of five at this point in the season. Chas Davis retiring from a race that he led from pole position. Um, to Chas Davis's great credit, because he had to come from the fourth row of the grid to explain these new reverse grid rules that are coming for the season. If you didn't finish in the top nine of the race, you essentially started from 10th backwards based on the order you qualified. So Chas Davis had to start race to 10th on the grid, one spot behind Jonathan Ray. Um, and Chas Davis would go on to earn what in the end, I suppose, would be termed a consolation win in race two at Aragon. But even in that one, he very nearly threw that one away on the last lap, Dre. He did indeed a very big near miss towards the end of towards the end of that race as well, where, again, Ray was able to stay with him, put Chaz under a lot of pressure again in that final lap. This time, Chaz was able to come out on top and take his first win of the year. Um, and a, an absolutely critical victory. Um, if he ever needed one. But uh, again, like the overall theme of the weekend was, well, Jonathan Ray's now good everywhere. This is a serious friggin' problem. <laughs> yeah, where on earth do you beat this guy? Um, that was the question that everyone else was starting to ask. Jonathan Ray extending his lead uh, once more. He was now uh, 50 points clear uh, of Chaz Davies at the front of the championship, just six races in. Tom Sykes was even further back um, in third place in the championship. Um, having left Aragon with a third and a fourth, Marco Melandri just enhancing how much of a Ducati circuit it was supposed to be by beating the other Kawasaki to the finish in both races. Um, we also saw another Ducati making headlines that weekend in Xavi Forrest, who ended race one in a bowl of flames, um, which was probably one of the few times we saw him up the front, or certainly on camera in a season. But to be fair to Forrest, Dre, because I want to try and mention some of the unsung heroes of the season as we go through this show... Chavi Forres, a rider who we saw very little of in 2017, but actually, he was one of the unsung heroes of the season, wasn't he? He bounced back in that second race in Aragon to finish sixth. And mm -hmm. when you look through the season, it's amazing how many times Chavi Forres was actually top six in the race. It happened more often than not. Yeah, again, I think almost half the season. I'm going to give a quick count in my head here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight nine, ten times out of 26 races, Avi Forrest is in the top six. Um, yeah, very strong indeed. Um, very consistently up there in the top ten almost every time. Um, yeah, one of the real underrated dudes in the field and one of the most underrated stories of last season, especially after nearly setting his nuts on fire mm. um, in, in Aragon race. In Aragon race one, he got he went quite viral for that one, if I remember correctly. Mm. But um, yeah, one of the real gems of last season was Avi Forrest, who just did exactly what he needed to do. Um, a yeah, real professional out there every time on that satellite Ducati. Never quite had the tools of the big guys, but he was the perennial fawn in the side for Yamaha. And he, and, he fit, and he just finished behind them in the championship and he was challenging for top sixes on several occasions and taking advantage of the rules where he could where, where he could help himself he, he led laps throughout the season as well so he knew what he was doing 
And again, no surprise that he's been retained there because he's a very, very valuable asset to have and there's not very many people in the field who are better than him. Mm, absolutely. He's had a tremendous season, Chubby, before he's finished the season. Seventh in the championship. Um, Assen hosted round four of the championship. And it's fair to say that Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davis, whilst they were considered rivals in the World Superbike Championship, having finished um, first and second and first and third, respectively, in the last two seasons and had done the lion's share of the winning across both of the two previous seasons, it wasn't really considered a heated rivalry between the two riders. They seemed to have an awful lot of respect for each other and got on very well. Andre Superpole at Assen was where that all changed. Yeah, this got ugly <laughs> quite quickly. Um, yeah, um, Superpole happens. Chaz Davis is on a hot lap. He's probably not going to challenge for pole position. Um, it was quite far away, but Jonathan Ray had completed his hot lap. He, he, he had done his qualifying session effectively but he was kind of sort of blocking the racing line as davis was coming through davis was not best pleased about this to put it mildly Yanked jonathan ray by the arms like oh, no i'm over here asshole basically <laughs> <laughs> on that and then after the race after the session itself he, he gives ray a piece of his mind in the park ferme which uh sadly Eurosports microphones picked up in uh journey it was a little bit pre-watershed to say the least mm. um and i was like i love that marab was like oh let's 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 listen into this now and then you can hear chas literally effing and blinding whilst jonathan ray's sort of pleading his, his innocence jonathan ray would go on to apologize for that once he'd obviously seen the footage and realized just how um, blatant a block it was on Chaz Davies. Um, but what amazed me from that weekend, and I, I don't know whether Chaz Davies regrets it now, um, what he said, but the, the essay-like statement that followed later in that week where um, basically Chaz Davies accused Jonathan Ray of playing games whenever he felt a genuine threat was being posed to him, which caught us all by surprise. This was unsavoury. Like, like it's it's one of those things where you just go... This doesn't add up. Like Chaz, I don't know. I don't know how much of this was in the heat of the moment. I don't know how much of the red mist had descended from the conversation. Because this statement was uh, several days later. It was several days later, in the middle of the week. He'd posted times. He'd looked. He clearly looked at the data. Looked at spreadsheets. Looked at telemetry. Seemed to like. He seems like to try and formulate an argument in his head, and then laid waste to this two thousand word essay talking about Jonathan Ray and how how much time it cost him, how much slower he was going, but also some pretty serious accusations in there about how he's a dirty rider and that he plays mind games with people. He said he, when he perceives a genuine threat, he, um, apparently he, he, he gets he, he gets very uh, you know questionable on the, when it comes to mentality, which we sat down and we talked about this, and we basically said, well, there's no real evidence to suggest that apart from... Chaz just, you know, mentioning text messages off the record, which, again, is, you know, you can easily say that, but it's, you can't really prove this. Um, it was a bizarre rant on, on Facebook, and he didn't, I don't think he came off particularly well from it, because, as mentioned, I think these two had a lot of mutual respect for each other, and if, if I was being spoken about in such a way on Facebook, I would not be best pleased about it. And, yeah, uh, unsavory and bizarre i think was the terms i used to describe that then and i think it's even more bizarre now looking back given how well they seem to get along again now mm. so it's all i don't know like i don't know why Chaz had kept that in his locker so bad it was it's, it was a very very bizarre 
you know, sort of post reading reading it now. It was very, very odd. Yeah, it was bizarre. The the one sort of funny piece of lightheartedness that came from that was just how funny Tom Sykes found it all. Uh, in part, if I may, when uh, he, uh, in true Yorkshire fashion, having mean handed his first Super Bowl watch of the year, just blatantly, just uh, unashamedly went, yeah, I'll take it. Because <laughs> he, <was, laughs> he, he was handed pole position by Jonathan Ray's penalty that he got, where he was basically penalised a row on the grid. Um, for blocking Chaz Davies late in Super Bowl 2. Um, that first poll of the season didn't do Tom Sykes any good in the end in race 1. He finished second to his teammate. And that was kind of ironic, um, Chaz Davies's comments as well, about what Jonathan Ray does when he perceives a guy is a threat to him. Because as the season was going on, Chaz Davies was becoming less and less of a threat. Um, Chaz Davies chasing Jonathan Ray for most of the way in race 1 before his Ducati conked out on him. Three laps from the finish, um, which uh, caused Chaz Davies to lose yet even more points. Um, to his title rival and in the second race Chaz Davis just quite simply could not get through the traffic in that second race leaving the Kawasaki's to take another 1-2 Jonathan Ray only just on this occasion beating Tom Sykes in a photo finish over the line um, so Jonathan Ray had by this point in the season in eight races taken seven wins and a second place before he arrived at Imola um, not a bad start not a bad start uh, Jonathan Ray who had previously doubled Imola on a Honda wasn't going to do this on this occasion he had to settle for two seconds because um, much to the relief of Chas Davis and Ducati um, they might not have owned Aragon anymore but on home soil they still certainly owned Imola they definitely did um, yeah like you might as well have just thrown the season away now if uh if if if, if Chas Davies didn't double up at home in Imola, but yet another track he seems to dominate, and he did just that here again as well. Comfortable in both races, comfortable with the reverse grid. Didn't ever really look like he wasn't going to win either race. Um, whereas the Kawasaki's had to, had to have another scrap for for minor for minor podium positions on this occasion because Chas was in another league in Imola, and that's what DK kind of expected, really. Mm, yeah, two seconds for Jonathan Ray, a third and a fourth for Sykes. He was beaten to third in race one by Marco Melandri. It wasn't really a weekend that produced much in the way of talking points um, or images that we really remember from that weekend, with one exception. And that was the horrendous accident down at Ravazza between Alex Lowe's and Eugene Laverty, uh, which saw Laverty's Aprilia explode quite literally in a ball of flames, having careered into a concrete wall at over 100 miles an hour. Um, and it sounds really mean, but how much of an image or how much of a, a symbolism is that for Aprilia's season, Dre? <laughs> a, 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 a team who, and a manufacturer who we had high hopes for heading into this season. Of we course, they were, they were back with a, what was essentially now a full factory team once again, having... Um, jumped into bed with the pretty poor Iota team the year prior. Um, they'd now joined Milwaukee. There was much more Aprilia input. They brought Eugene Laverty back from MotoGP, having done some mm-hmm. very impressive work over there. And it just never happened for them. Not a single podium. I'd just like to remind everybody here that Eugene Laverty jumped off a bike on 170 miles an hour and it looked like a frigging cartoon when it hit the wall and burst into flames. It was like something you'd get like a red flag it. Yeah, it's a red flag. It looked like something out of a Wiley Coyote cartoon. Just like, like did the bike have the words Acme written across the side of it <laughs> by any chance? Um, but by any measure, yeah, it is a pretty good euphemism for Aprilia's season. And there was very high hopes in that Aprilia camp going into this year. They were thinking, I mean, and let's be real here, we've mentioned this before, Aprilia are a very arrogant bunch of sods in the sense of they, they, like, they were thinking wins in MotoGP this year. Exactly. Mm. So they had very, very high hopes going into this season. Um, and yeah, I mean, no matter which way you slice it, Eugene Laverty barely cracking the top 10 of the championship. 
Um, Savadori behind him, again, another 30-odd points back at 11th, basically midfield for a, for a pretty all year long. You know, they had occasional flashes of solid results, a few top fives here and there, but you like they both finished behind Leon Cami as MV Augusta. That was they, they weren't and even the BM the of Torres and the BM of Torres. So they weren't even like the best, you know, second tier Italian team behind Giacchetti. MV Augusta picked them to the post of Camia by a beating beating Laverty by a handful of points. Um, so it's a disaster, like for 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 them, no matter which way you cut it. Um, not pretty for a pretty to say the least. And again, as you say, they poured a lot of resources into the, into this season and they didn't really have anything to show for it. And yeah, it's a shame um, because I know Laverty, I think Laverty is a better rider than this bike is making him look. And the fact they were still mentioning stuff like the tire issues at Portimao later on in the year where they were, they had pace to run with the top boys, but then faded in the, in the second half of races yeah, it wasn't pretty overall, and yeah, just a real shame that uh, Aprilia weren't up there giving the other bigger factories um, more of a shout, because again, they were, they were strong by name, but uh, not by nature, unfortunately. No, and if you look at the outright riders' championship positions, the only make of bike that the Aprilia riders um, were able to beat in their entirety were the Hondas, um, and Honda had a pretty uh, dreadful season. They'd started the season badly, Honda, with their new Fireblade um, back in, which they received right before the season started, pretty much on the eve of the new season. Um, they received their new Fireblade for 2017. They'd been having a disastrous season, but this is the part of the season that I think we've all been dreading approaching. Um, once uh, Imola had finished, the problems that the Red Bull Honda team had been suffering in, in that season so far kind of paled into insignificance based on what happened uh, between Imola and Donington, where whilst training in the Rimini region of Italy, uh, Nicky Hayden, their lead rider and 2006 MotoGP world champion, uh, was involved in a road traffic accident um, whilst training on his bicycle. He was admitted to hospital um, in the Rimini region um, of Italy um, and was admitted to an intensive care unit where he fought for his life for five days until, very sadly, he lost his life, um, which was just a tragic, tragic shame and a, and a moment that just shocked the entire sporting world, let alone the motorsport world. Um, and it's just even now, Dre, I mean, we're talking about this now six months after um, the, the loss of Nicky Hayden. And it still doesn't seem real um, that this has happened. And this was a moment, wasn't it, that at the time, this wasn't just motorcycle racing or motorsport that was rocked to its core. This took the whole sporting world to its knees. We all remember 2006. We all remember the beaming reactions of Nicky Hayden. I mean, Julian Ryder, who's just basically hung up the microphone, said that was the most emotional day of his biking career. And it doesn't feel like six months at all. It feels like it happened yesterday. Now, when you said it was six months, I was like, what, really? It's been six months already? It's... It's 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 incredible how fast time flies when you don't think about it sometimes. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. The tributes were from all over the sporting world, and you know Formula One was very reactionary in posting tributes to Nicky Hayden. And Lewis Hamilton at Monaco that weekend afterwards had a 69 on his helmet as tribute, as did Romain Grosjean, who was a big biking fan as well. And you know many guys in sport laid out tributes, and we, it, it it was a shocking one. Like the had the accident we were talking about. Very similar conversation to what happened with Jules Bianchi um, a couple of years prior when it comes to, you know, brain injuries and, you know, the the 
the minefield of problems it can come up with and this de- general uncertainty of it's all. We've we've been here before with these conversations with you know, Jules, Michael Schumacher, etc. But when he saw the news that, you know, he succumbed to his injuries, I was I was I was numb for a good for a good few hours. I was I just couldn't believe it. I was like, no, not another one like this. No. It was it was dreadful. Um, there is no other. It was dreadful. It was a horrible, horrible blow to one of the real personalities of bike racing in the last couple of decades to have to, to lose someone like Nicky Hayden, such a valued part of the paddock. And uh, again, we mentioned it before. We've had the honour of interviewing him, and he is he is every bit as genuine behind the bike as he as he was on it. And it's it's still a, a bummer that we know. That he that he's gone, and again, the fact it's six months is 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 crazy, and to say the least. Yeah, it is still still the proudest moment I've had uh, in in the three you know, three and a half That's years done. that I've had um, doing this show. The, the opportunity to be able to speak to Nicky Hayden um, on this show, incidentally, the interview um, that we did with Nicky Hayden is still able to listen to. Um, if you head to episode twelve of Bike Live um, here on the Motorsport One Hundred and One, if you head to our SoundCloud feed or our Apple Podcast feed, you can find it on there. Uh, and listen to them all the time when we were able to speak to him on this show and um, mm-hmm. it, 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 just that one moment we had with him it was, a, it was a privilege for us to just be able to share 15 minutes with him where we rang him an hour early than we were supposed to um, at essentially 7 o'clock in the morning back in his time mm-hmm. back in the United States and he was still more than happy to speak to us um, which um, just just goes to show just how, how humble and how nice a guy he was he had time for anybody and he was a guy that was one of the true superstars of this sport. There are very few of them who, um, as much as we sing the praises of motorcycle racing, it is still, to the large part, a niche sport um, around the world. Um, But Nicky Hayden was one of the few guys, along with Valentino Rossi, who transcended the sport, who was known worldwide for who he was Mm -hmm. and for what he'd done. And it is still just a tragic shame that he's no longer with us. It was uh, a moment, as I say, that not just rocked World Superbikes, that rocked motorsport, it rocked sport. Um, and still does to this day. Um, and it, it almost seems um, futile and, and, and pointless to even discuss Honda's season, Dre, um, based on what happened to them and what happened to their lead rider back in May. Um, and in many ways, the team deserves a bit of a pass for what's happened to them this season, yeah. based on what they've had to put up with. Um, but it, it is fair to say that given how late they received their motorcycle, before the season starts, this Honda season was almost doomed to failure from the get-go. Yeah, it was. It seemed destined to fail from the start. I mean, we talked. To, we, we we were in shock when Greg Haynes talked to us on the season preview, our very first episode on here, um, and he said, "Yeah, Honda basically got the bike at the eleventh hour. Um, only they only had a couple of weeks with the bike before they had to fly out to Phillip Island and race it. So this was." A development project essentially from the start. Just don't tell the riders that because they never. I don't think they want to hear the terms development project, especially if you're one Stefan Bradley who's just come off a unfortunate MotoGP career. He was a solid runner in MotoGP for years, and Nicky Hayden, who probably in the twilight of his career probably wouldn't want to hear the terms development project at the age of 35. So um, it's it, it seemed almost doomed to fail from the start, and as you say. Um, their year pretty much kind of deserves a wash, really, because they've been so unfortunate. Obviously, not only just the loss of Hayden, but also Bradle being injured and basically missing the last four weekends. And, you know, a bike that 
seemed to be up and down in form as the season went on and you know a, a, a slaver of replacement riders yeah, that you know just had were... zero didn't they because even Bradle started getting injured late in the season Bradle didn't essentially race in the last three rounds of the season um, yeah. after he injured himself um, at his home round at the Lousy Street which again just illustrates how luckless this team was that Bradle uh-huh. injured himself on his home weekend um, his first ever home round in World Superbikes where he failed to start the second race because he injured his wrist um, they called in Jake Gagne who had that awful awful task of having to replace Dickie Hayden at the United States round of the championship at Laguna Seca and did an admirable job it has to be said um, did Jake Gagne it's one of the stories that will never be mentioned really when this season gets reviewed in decades to come but Jake Gagne in his replacement rides for that Honda did an excellent job on that bike um, finishing uh, in the points on uh, well of the six outings he took part in five of them he scored points and beat Giuliano as a his teammate on a few of those, because Davide Giuliano was drafted into that team late in the season once Bradle went down injured. Um, and, yeah, in many ways, Honda, I think, are glad that the season is over and done with and that they can try and pretend this season never happened, quite frankly. And in many, yeah. in many ways, and they've tweeted today, uh, Matt Roberts tweeted today how he was very, very happy for this team, uh, about how excited they were after pre-season testing this week. Uh, and we'll come on to that a bit more in the middle of the show when we do the news. But Leon Camio, who, of course, has joined this team for next season, um, that is, as Matt Roberts says, I can only echo what he said on Twitter, Dre. That is one rider and team that deserve so much luck and so much good fortune next year. They deserve each other. That's what they deserve. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it is lovely to see Honda in good spirits, given that they, they, they've probably been through so much right uh, this year, emotionally, physically, metaphorically, with how... Their year's basically been an, an unmitigated disaster, but Camia is, you know, was probably getting frustrated at MV Augusta's lack of progression. But he, he's a rider as well who will relish that development role, that development task. Oh, he relishes that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he's the sort of guy that it's his team, basically. They're going to build it around him, they're going to have his input going, and. They're gonna, yeah, they're gonna absolutely go out there and attack, and Camia gets to lead the charge again, which is probably exactly what Camia wants. He's got the keys, and he's he's got a bike that will probably have more potential in the long term than anything MV Augusta is going to produce at the moment. So, yeah, I, it is lovely to see, um, you know, Honda excited that they've got you know a, a excellent excellent rider in, in Leon Camia to build a team around, and in the case of Camia. You've got a bike and a factory with a lot more resources available to try and push you up the field. Mm, yeah, with a very heavy heart then, while Superbikes carried on, uh, the show did indeed go on at Donington Park for round six of the championship. And having defeated Chance Davies at his premier circuit, really, at Aragon, um, the one task really left to Jonathan Ray in a season and a, a career of incredible achievements. One of the things he hadn't done at this point was beat Tom Sykes around his premier circuit of Donington Park. Sykes, who'd won the last eight races consecutively uh, on British soil in the World Superbike Championship and would go on to make it nine, Dre, um, but he barely did it, it's fair to say. Yeah, Jonathan Ray pushed him all the way on that one. Um, it, it, was, it was turning into a bit of a time trial race. Jonathan was, was staying with him, just about hanging in there until... Oh... Wait, what's that tire doing off the rim? Uh, oh, that's a biggie. Down and Jonathan the crane curves. Down the crane of curves is basically 50 feet away from the track in a pile of gravel after f- basically having the tire 
fall off the rim at something like 130 miles an hour. Um, terrifying accident to watch in real time. Um, luckily, Jonathan was okay. Um, but uh, a very bizarre accident, bizarre to the point where uh, Peretti pulled the tire for the rest of the weekend's allocation um, due to, um, again, the potential fear of safety. A very, very bizarre accident, um, all, all told. And, yeah, luckily no, nothing further in it than that. But, uh, yeah, it, it was the only threat Sykes had that in, in, in that first race at Donington. Uh, had a very, very unfortunate uh, tie collapse. Yeah, that made it nine out of nine for Tom Sykes. Leon Haslam coming through to finish second as a wild card for the Pachetti team um, in a partnership with Randy Krimenacker, who was their regular rider for the majority of the season until he was jettisoned around Portimao. Um, Leon Haslam joining him for that weekend and finishing second um, around a circuit that he perhaps knows better than anybody else in the world. Um, Alex Lowe's coming from essentially the back of the field to third, having been punted off the track at turn one by the aforementioned Haslam. And in this season of great rides, in particular by Jonathan Raid, Ray, that ride from Alex Lowe's in race one in Donington pretty much stacks up against any as one of the rides of the season. It was. It absolutely was. And I remember this interview, Alex Lowe's bursting into tears when he got back to Park Ferme because of how much it meant to him. that he was podium like, since the Suzuki days. Yeah, like his, his first World Superbike podium in ages to do it on home soil and, to, and in the manner he did it and how he never gave up and came back from essentially the back of the field to finish on the podium was a phenomenal effort from Alex. So going back to his British days of 2011 in the Superbike Championship domestically, um, to carry that form into Donington proper. Um, wow. Uh, phenomenal performance uh, from from Alex. It was one of the rides of World Superbikes all season long. He was he was he was superb. Um, and again, you could see how much it meant to him. And it was it was a lovely moment for this for the series as well to, to have again a, a British rider on the top on, well, on not the top step per se, but one from the domestic series that had gum up and uh, a real nice moment for Yamaha to have him back on the podium like that. That was their first podium since on, on the R1 as well. So that was a, a key step forward for the Yamaha team as well mm. to have Lowe's on the podium. Yeah, and a key moment for that team and a team that has been one of the big improvements of the season, haven't they, Dre? I mean, they've, yeah. they've had podiums, not just podiums, but, but podiums on merit this season. They've led races on merit this season, courtesy of Vandermark in, in Mazzano, around we'll come on to shortly. Um, we also saw Lowe's and Vandermark together on the podium, a double podium at Magni late in the season. And Alex Lowe's ending the campaign with a third place on pure pace and nothing else in the final round, uh, the final race of the final round in Qatar. Um, this is a team who, of course, entered World Superbikes to so much fanfare and hype at the start of 2016. We expected them to come straight in and compete at the front immediately, and it didn't happen for them. It's probably fair to say that their level of performance in 2017 is more what we were expecting last year. Um, but if they continue that rate of progress, Yamaha, surely they've got to be targeting wins next year, have they not? How can they not be? Like this, like you've done everything else at this point. You had multiple second and third places all year long. Um, Alex Lowe's having four of them. Like Vanderlot got on the podium once as well towards the end at Magni Core. So, you know, you had multiple podiums this year. You know, if this was last year, we'd have called this a great season. This year, it's a good season i would say because the yamaha they've clearly taken a step forward um can be compared to last year this is definitely a step in the right direction no matter which way you slice it but next year they've got to be thinking wins because they're, they're still 
80 plus points away from Marco Melandri for fourth overall. So they've got to take another probably similarly sized step forward next year. I mean, last year they were looking at, you know, top eights. Now they're on the podium and in the top sixes regularly. Like that's the baseline for them now. They've now got to be thinking wins and see if they can get in there with the Ducatis and the Kawasaki's. I mean, we've mentioned it before with the new rules, but you know, really, they are the greatest potential benefactors of this new rule, given they establish top four in World Superbikes right now. So if there, if anyone's set to gain, it's Yamaha from this. So really. It should, it should be the time for them to get their heads down and get cracking for 2018 because the potential is there for them to really challenge for wins on a frequent basis now. Yeah, and it has to be said, the test this week at, at Jerez, they were very, very quick. Although, as you'll hear shortly, there was another team who were just a tad quicker. Uh, more on that <laughs> a little bit later on. Um, we've still got race two of Donington to tell you about. And, of course, this was set up as Tom Sykes going for 10 in a row. Um, up against his teammate Jonathan Ray and we were at this point starting to ask ourselves well what on earth will it take for someone to beat Tom Sykes around Donington Park and not for the first time in 2017 Dre it was Jonathan Ray's sheer brilliance through the reverse grid rule that made the ultimate difference exactly it was it was the reverse grid rule and Jonathan Ray's ability to be able to basically just dictate the terms of that race and it's a little bit too much to do, really. I mean, Sykes was still the faster man, and he was he was bearing down on Ray. He would probably need another three or four laps to really start putting Jonathan under some pressure. But, yeah, simply put, just gave him too much to do. And, you know, Tom Sykes does not have the ability to be able to push to the front like Jonathan Ray can, and that's ultimately cost him the Ty Dillinger. Yeah, it cost him the Ty Dillinger in the end. Um, I had that theme music lined up for the episode and uh, never got to use it damn you johnny um but uh but yeah but yeah jonathan ray he went from ninth to first in a lap and one corner um he was overtaking what i believe was the andrew mccardo who he overtook for the lead um into red gate corner at the start of lap two that's how quickly it was tom sykes made it up to second by what i think was around one third distance in the race um but yeah. by that point he'd given essentially jonathan ray a four second head start and you do not give a ride like jonathan ray four seconds of head start and still beat him because no matter what tom sykes did and as you say he was quicker in that race but four seconds was just too big a bridge to climb over um so jonathan ray had essentially climbed both mountains he'd beaten Chaz davis at Chaz's ultimate circuit and now he'd beaten tom sykes at his ultimate circuit um sykes was able to take his second victory and ultimately his last victory of the season in the next race of the season race one at mizano um, but that doesn't even come close to telling the story of perhaps Dre the craziest race of 2017 where tom sykes went into the final lap seven seconds off the lead and fourth and still came out the winner uh, <laughs> I don't quite know to this day how that happened. Um, yeah, this was a bizarre race. Probably up there with the most freaky of the entire season where, you know, Ray and Davis were at it again. Very, very close running. Um, going down to basically the final hairpin. Three corners to go on the circuit. Um, down that triple right-hander. Um, it looks like Ray had gotten it done. Um, but again, Davis loses loses the front um, on on the last hairpin. Ray's around the outside of him. Um, nothing Ray can do. He's collected, essentially riding over Chaz's back, which was frightening for a second. Yeah, there broke his vertebrae. 
Yeah, cracked a couple of discs in uh, in Chaz's back on that one. Ray was actually able to remount his bike and finish the race in third, which says a lot about the state of World Superbikes, really. <laughs> um, um, as Sykes took the easiest win of his life and, and couldn't the quite believe. Yeah, and yeah, like the, the, the champ, like was he was he betting on, on himself in that race? Was he, was he going full Stuart Bingham on that one? Because yeah. it was just like, how on earth did this happen? Where like like Moses parted the Red Sea, and the next thing you know, Jonathan Ray is is in third. Marco Melandri has got back up. Actually, it was actually Lowe's fine bad. It was in second place. Oh, yeah. And then Ray Ray was in third um, with, with Tom Sykes getting, for no better lack of a better term, the jammiest win of his life. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and as I, and, as I uh, as, and, and Tom Sykes both demonstrated, um, both being Yorkshiremen, that Yorkshiremen are never too embarrassed to celebrate a race win. Um, I, as proven on that day, I was rolling out all the uh, smug Jeremy Clarkson gifts. Um, that I could find that, that Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Um, and as, as I mentioned, that would be Sykes' last win of the season. Uh, he would only take two um, over the course of the campaign. And it's, it's easy to forget just how chaotic and crazy a race that was, that that battle between Chaz Davies and Jonathan Ray, they'd had Mark, Michael Vandermark showing them the way for most of the race before he suffered another Pirelli tyre problem where his tyre came off the rim at the fastest corner of the circuit. Michael Vandermark, who set the fastest lap and was leading that race and leading it well, uh, was denied what could have been his first win and Yamaha's first win since returning to World Superbikes and their first win ultimately since the final round of 2011 in World Superbikes. That's how crazy a race that one was at Mizano in race one. And race two had its fair share of surprises as well because we had Xavi Forres running in the podium positions before his bike broke on him. Jordi Torres was running second before his BMW broke down and through all of that for the first time in, well, three years in World Superbikes, came Marco Melandri to take victory and the 100th victory for an Italian rider in the championship. Um, it would go on to be his only win of, of 2017, Dre, but even with just one win for the season, the sheer weight of podiums and point scoring and that success at Misano has justified Ducati's decision to bring this guy back into the series. It was. Like, like for all due respect to Marco, he was a lot more consistent to what, to what Davide Giuliano was. He was the exact definition of what Ducati needed, a solid number two clean-up man who could score decent points for Ducati if Davide, uh, if Chaz was having a bad day. And, uh, yeah, Marco took advantage of uh, the situation of guys around him. Um, the, the infighting and Jordi Torres' very, very unfortunate retirement in a race where he was running second, um, with just a handful of laps to go. Um, so, yeah, Marco took full advantage of that and, yeah, punished him. Uh, and, and, yeah, it was a great victory, a, a very marquee victory for, for Italy, um, obviously to win uh, at home for Ducati and obviously the, the milestone of, a t- of 100 Italian victories in World Bikes. That was, that was awesome. Mm. Uh, it's, it's fair to say that had he not dumped it on the final lap of race one, it probably would have been a double for Melandri because... It could have been. As I mentioned, Tom Sykes went into that final lap of race one in fourth. Um, He was promoted to third, four corners around the final corner when Melandri went down out of third place. And of course, had uh, Melandri not gone down, he would have been the man to take advantage of the Davies-Ray collision towards the end of the lap. Um, But Melandri taking that first victory of the season, his only win of the season, in race two at Misano. Um, It's fair to say, Dre, although that was the the halfway point of the season, that was probably the high point of the season because there were very few exciting races that followed it has to be said and Laguna Seca was really where the public perception of World Superbikes really started to turn the natives were getting restless 
Um, after a, a very brave victory from Chaz Davis in race one, um, returning from that back injury to win race one ahead of Rayan Sykes. Um, but race two saw the Kawasaki riders completely crush the opposition with the dominant one-two, with Chaz Davies nowhere to be seen in third place. And by this point, the natives were starting to turn on the series. I blame Keith Hewan for this. Uh, it's all his fault. He tweeted about it, and then everybody followed. Um, but yeah, I mean, like this was when the bubble essentially burst on 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 the season. Really, I don't to this day still quite know why and how that. I, mean, I think it was because of the location. I think it was because people expect great racing at Laguna Seca. When, let's be honest, as a circuit, Laguna Seca isn't all that great for bike racing anymore. But. Um, be careful who you tell that to. Um, but, yeah, it, it was definitely the race where the public had turned. And it's a shame because, yeah, it wasn't a thrilling like weekend of racing in Laguna Seca. No one's denying that. I, I'll be the first guy to agree with you. It was not a captivating weekend by any measure. But I think to say that the season had gotten dull when when – I think that was fair, given the amount of great racing that had come before it. So We just left Misano, which was brilliant. It was probably the weekend of the year. Yeah, a, a bonkers Misano race. Three different manufacturers. Four, if you include Jordi Torres on the BMW. You know, multiple manufacturers, multiple world-class riders being in there, getting in the mix and getting involved. And yeah, we had great racing on many occasions leading up to this race. So for all of us, all of a sudden to see, you know... Riders, you know, so, you know, prominent personalities like Keith Ewan complaining about the series not being entertained enough. I still think that was down more to, uh, you know, more down more to, you know, the, the the lightning in a bottle of it being Laguna Seca more than actual legitimate complaints about the series. Because if you were watching the series to that point, I don't see how you could call it boring. I really don't. No, it was the championship was becoming boring in as much as Jonathan Ray had no real competition, but the races in themselves were very exciting. It's one of those where you look at certain seasons like I, I was a Formula 1 fan. One of my favourite seasons was 2010 and the, the five-way championship fight we had for a lot of the season. It was a brilliant championship but I wouldn't claim there were many classic races that year. Um, it just they, they all combined to make a very exciting and fascinating championship and um, you, you look at 2011, probably had more better races that year in Formula 1, but the championship sucked in comparison because Sebastian Vettel dominated it. It's one of those. Um, and this yeah. season, um, there were many great races, but not a great championship. It didn't really help the championship as a whole um, that it had a six-week summer break leaning into probably its most unpopular round of the season next up. Yeah. The Lausitz ring in Germany um, and another round that pretty much suited Chaz Davies and Ducati down to the ground. And Another weekend, Dre, well, there was very little by way of action and incident to talk about. More case of Jonathan Ray twisting the knife even more. Because, of course, Chaz Davis's injuries have pretty much ruled him out of any contention for the championship. Yep. So Tom Sykes was the only mathematical contender. And Tom Sykes, um, by all due respect, pretty much had no answer to Jonathan Ray in that weekend. Even if Johnny had no answer to Chaz Davis, Johnny pretty much kept his teammate well under control. Yeah, that was all he needed to do, really. Yeah, let Chaz get his. Just, just finish second both times. Take more points, you know, away from you for away from Tom Sykes, and just go from there. And that's exactly what happened, really. And yeah, uh, Chaz loves this place. He's very, very good around it. Can't say it was the most popular round on the calendar, if, oh. if uh, um, according to the riders themselves. You know, bumpy, not very well maintained, barely any fans showing up. Besides that, apparently it was great, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, just uh, not an ideal round for anybody involved, apart from Chaz, by the sounds of it. Yeah, who um, dominated every dry race that took place there. Of course, he was he missed out on a double last year when 
the rain fell in the ra in the second race of the weekend and let Jonathan Ray in to take race two. Charles Davies had won that first race by over 10 seconds the day before. He certainly found a way around there, um, but I don't think many people are going to miss that as a venue because it's off the world. Superbike calendar now it's becoming a permanent test venue. Um, Tom Sykes has mentioned he was the only real mathematical contender to Jonathan Ray for the World Championship by this point, and that all, unfortunately, disappeared in quite literally, Dre, a ball of flames at Portimao. Yeah, I think it was the Super Bowl session where this happened, where um, just Sykes has a, a very uncharacteristic crash coming up the other side of the hill, loses it, the black catches frames, Sykes breaks his thumb, misses the weekend, and, well, when you factor in Davis's race two retirement, this was basically the fat lady opening the vocal cords. This was done uh, by the end of this weekend. Ray takes a completely dominant double. No one's in the same postcode as him no. in Portsmouth. Sykes was nowhere to be seen due to injury. Missed the test as well, which was doubly unfortunate. Then Davis makes a silly mistake in race two and crashes. And next thing you know, Jonathan Ray's destroyed everybody and it's over. The season really was effectively done by that point. Mm, yeah, it essentially led us to Mangley Core with three rounds to, the, to go, six races to go. And Jonathan Ray was one victory away uh, from wrapping up an unprecedented third consecutive World Superbike Championship. And it, it's fair to say, Dre, his previous two championships, they weren't necessarily clinched the way he would have wanted to clinch them. Um, Hareth, his first title, which he clinched with a fourth place. Um, in uh, in that weekend of that season, and of course last year in Qatar, the first race of the final round, he clinched it with a second, uh, having followed Chas Davies home, who was in the form of his life at that time of the season. Right. Um, but if Jonathan Ray was to script a way of clinching his third world championship, it would have probably followed a little bit like that first race went in Magni Cor, um back in October. Pole position by 1.2 seconds in wet conditions, and then he went on to win the race itself by over 15. Park it up, everybody! It's time to come home. It's 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 over, and yeah, he did it in completely classy Jonathan Ray fashion, just completely destroying the opposition. Something he does better than anyone we've ever seen in this series. Yeah, <coughs> me, but um, yeah, absolutely. Um, Completely dominated, pole by 1.2 seconds, won the race by over a dozen. Yeah, nobody had a prayer for uh, in, in terms of competition on that one. And yeah, completely dominant victory. And yeah, way to wrap up his third title in, in basically a cakewalk in um, wet Mangley core conditions. Can't say any more than that. It was it was just the cherry on top of what's been what was a near perfect season for Jonathan mm. in that to that point. An absolute masterclass uh, from Jonathan Ray, who might well have ended the season with eight consecutive victories had he not been tripped up in that second race um, by Eugene Laverty who went down as Jonathan Ray was busy trying to perform another ninth to first uh, performance in that second race. Chaz Davies taking the win in that second race at Magni Court as Tom Sykes finished seventh to hand Kawasaki the team's championship. They would go on to wrap up the manufacturer's championship next time out at Jerez. And all that was left for Jonathan Ray really to aim for, Dre, was the points record. And we, th we feared and thought that the lack of any good fortune in that second race at Magnico when Eugene Lavity took him down would rob him of that record just as mechanical failure robbed him of the record two years prior um, Jonathan Ray essentially needed four wins out of four from the final two rounds to seal the deal and break the record and to be honest there was no way anyone was going to deny him was there no, like the racing gods were like, no, let's strike down Marco Melandri's engine in race two <laughs> in RF just to make sure of it 
Is it, is it, ever seen the, the, the Simpsons clip where Ned Flanders goes, "Hey God, it's me, Neddy," and then yeah. you know, it's like that's probably what happened there with Marco Melandri's engine and at the end of that Harafa race because five laps from the end, Marco looked like he was comfortably going to win race race one in Harafa, and next thing you know, the engine conks out, and that just sums up Ducati's year really. And yeah, John, after that, it was pretty much smooth sailing for for, for Jonathan on that one comfortably won the last three races of the season and yeah seals history with 556 points the greatest world superbike season we've ever seen yeah, the greatest season we've ever seen and uh, an incredible just the, the numbers the sheer weight of numbers just really illustrate how incredible he was more poles than anyone else this season including tom sykes who usually has that record all to himself Ow! in a season jonathan ray had six poles to tom sykes's four Chaz Davies is two, and Marco Melandri is one. Melandri had a, an incredibly, he had a pole this season. That was at Jerez uh, late in the year. Jonathan Ray, of the 26 races, set the fastest lap in 14 of them. Um, no one else had more than five. That was Chaz Davies who had five. Marco Melandri set the fastest lap four times. Tom Sykes twice. Michael Vandermark set the fastest lap at Mizano. And of the 26 races, Jonathan Ray won 16 of them. Incredibly, including Shut seven up. of the last eight on his way to 556 points. Um, the all-time points record for a World Superbike season. Overall, here's how it finished. Jonathan Ray, the champion, by 153 points, no less, from Chas <laughs> Davies, who actually ended his season the season with 403 points, a points total that in previous seasons would actually have won him the championship, including 2013. That would have won him the title, that total, 403. Um, Tom Sykes finished the season third on 373. He crashed in the final race of the season in Qatar um, to basically extinguish any hopes he had of finishing runner-up for the second year in a row. Marco Melandri ends the year in fourth, including that victory, as we mentioned, at Mizano. Then came the two Yamahas, Alex Lowe's and Michael Vandermark. Lowe's finishing the year with a podium in the final round in Qatar. Vandermark, who perhaps could have won, will never know, that race at Mizano. He finishes the year sixth. Xavi Forrest seventh. Leon Camier continuing to do the Lord's work on the NBA Augusta, but for no longer, because he's cost now switching to Honda. He was eighth, ahead of Jordi Torres on the BM ninth. He's replacing Camille at MV next year, and the Milwaukee Aprilias of Eugene Larity and Lorenzo Savadori, who were 10th and 11th. Other unsung heroes for the season, Roman Ramos, who had a consistent campaign to finish 12th on the goal 11 Kawasaki, just ahead of Leandro Mercado, who um, did his level best on a very skint Iota Aprilia to take 13th, including a front row at Magni Core earlier in the year. Stefan Bridal, salvaging 14th for Honda in a season that they'd rather forget. Raffaele De Rosa, who had to step in for uh, Marcus Reiterberger three rounds in, was 15th overall. Randy Krumenacker lost his seat at Pachetti at Portimao, but he still ended the year 16th ahead of the late Nicky Hayden, who was 17th in the championship. Just ahead of the former champion, Sylvain Gintoli, who arrived for the final two rounds of the season and scored 34 points. Alex DeAngelis next up in 19th, ahead of Reiterberger in 20th. Ayrton Bandavini and Andre Jezek, the two Grillini, uh, Kawasaki's 21st and 22nd, ahead of Leon Haslam, who's 20 points for that second place with Donington, having 23rd overall, Jake Gagne, 24th, Alessandro Andriozzi, 25th, Davide Giuliano, 26th, and West, 27th, he was another replacement at Pacetti midway through the season, then claim Ricardo Russo, Takumi Takahashi, another Honda standard, Jake Dixon, who wildcarded um, with great distinction at Donington Park, more on him in the second half of this show, uh, when we cover BSB, um, he ended on 7 points, and Jeremy Guarnoni, uh, on five. Josh Brooks, who wildcarded at the opening round in Phillip Island. Robbie Rolfo, who appeared at the final round. And Julian Simon, who replaced the injured Lorenzo Savadori back at Aragon. We are 34 point scorers for this year's World Superbike season. The season that's dominated and basically 
written into the history books by the brilliance of Jonathan Ray, but a season that I think we'll all remember with a tinge of sadness in the year that we lost, the great Nicky Hayden. back with us on bike life and let's do the news and look back on the racing that still took place last weekend as the season uh, continued and um it is with great sadness that we continue really uh, with some sad news because uh, we've just covered a world superbike season that was tinged with tragedy and unfortunately this year's macau grand prix uh, was tinged with sadness as well um a race that was won by Glenn Irwin, um, completing what's been a very good season for Glenn Irwin. Of course, he took his first BSB win earlier this season, and he's now won the Macau Motorcycle Grand Prix uh, on the BYZ Ducati. Um, but that really pales into insignificance due to the accident which ended the race um, and the unfortunate uh, incident where Daniel Hegarty um, suffered an accident midway through that race, um, which brought out the red flags, and he unfortunately succumbed to his injuries uh, later that day. Um, it's another, it's a byproduct, unfortunately, Dre, of road racing. We we talk about this a lot when we come to TT time um, during the year in terms of just how uh, these guys literally, and it just is a measure of just how incredible these guys are that they put their lives in the lap of the gods, really, when they go to races like this and. It's such a tragic shame, and you could just see on the written all over the face of Glenn Irwin, couldn't you, as he was riding back to the pits, that image of him riding back to the pits, despite having won the Macau Grand Prix, which should be the highlight of anybody's motorsport career. Yet he was riding back to the paddock in floods of tears based on what he'd seen halfway around the racetrack. Exactly. Um, it's it's it, The images were heartbreaking. Um, the accident is still out there on the internet, for those you know, who aren't so much of the faint of heart, and it's an awful, awful accident, and it's it's Macau. You don't need me to tell you how dangerous it can be, you know, bike racing on streets with, you know, barricades everywhere, no runoff. If you crash, it could very well be your last, and yeah, it was heartbreaking to see Glenn Irwin, you know, you know, crying, you know, sad tears as opposed to happy tears because of what happened. And yeah, uh, an awful accident and an awful, awful result. Um, one that I think tinged the entire Macau weekend, really. Um, which is a shame because we had some tremendous racing on two wheels and four all weekend long. And um, yeah, it's been overshadowed by another tragic accident, unfortunately. And it's yeah we know what these guys do um you know we know the risks and we we respect the risks that these guys take for our entertainment indirectly but also these these, these guys want to do it and i think they know that when they get on the bike the, the, about the risks they're taking they're not stupid um but it doesn't make it any less sad of them to have to have to have any rider pass away in those circumstances so yeah, just, just, just awful yeah. to see. It, it's a tragic, tragic shame. Uh, Dan Hegarty, who uh, lost his life at the age of 31. Our, our thoughts are with his friends and family. Continuing to look back on last weekend, we move on to the FIM CEV, which reached its final round of the season last weekend. The uh, final round of the 
European Moto2 Championship, the European Talent Cup, and the Moto3 Junior World Championship. We'll start with the European Talent Cup, which reached its final round, with the championship still up for grabs, um, with uh, a number of riders still uh, in contention. This is another, by the way, of the uh, Dorna um, Talent Cups that are littering the world now, of course, with the British Talent Cup debuting next year, the Asia Talent Cup, which is already producing some fantastic talent into Grand Prix, and the European Talent Cup, which uh, is essentially a tier below the Junior World Championship on the CEV bill. Uh, the championship in the end went to Manuel Gonzalez on the Hal Courier Racing Honda. Um, pretty good season for Hal Curry all told. They also won the Supersport 300 Championship, didn't they, with Mark Garcia. Uh, Gonzalez taking the title despite only finishing fifth in the final race of the season, seeing off his compatriot Alex Toledo um, with the Brazilian uh, Melcon uh, Kawakami. Despite the very Japanese name, he is entered as a Brazilian um, for the Leglise Academy. He finished the season in third place. It was Toledo, incidentally, who took the final win of the season. Uh, just ahead of his fellow Spaniard, Victor Rodriguez. Um, the European Moto2 Championship was also decided, and it was the Brazilian Eric Granado um, who clinched the championship this season with a victory in the final round of the season, seeing off Ricky Cardus, who failed to finish the final round, although he had to make up a 16-point deficit anyway. Uh, Granado winning the final race and the championship by 41 points. Uh, Steve Nondal, last year's champion, uh, finishing third overall. He was second in the final race. He moves into Grand Prix next season with the NTS team, who add one manufacturer to the Moto2 field, um, a field that's also lost one, as we'll tell you in a little bit. Um, the final round out of the Moto3 Junior World Championship ended like this, uh, with the eventual champion, Dennis Foggia, winning the final race of the season. They had two races at Valencia last weekend, and Dennis Foggia won the second of them, ahead of Jean Messia, um, who won the first race of the weekend. Foggia winning the championship at the end by 79 points from Messia, uh, with Alonso Lopez, who was second in that final race, um, taking third overall in the championship. Vicente Perez, fourth overall, ahead of Jeremy Alcoba, and Kazuki Masaki, the Red Bull Rookies champion, who ends the year in sixth position. And it's fair to say, Dre, we said in previous shows that perhaps the the list of rookies for next season in Moto3, on paper, might not necessarily be as impressive as the likes of Mir, Bulliger, uh, who we've seen in recent years. But when you look at that top three in this Moto3 Junior World Championship of Foggia, Messia, and Alonso Lopez, who's heading into the Estrada Galicia team next season, we might be soon eating our words early next year. Yeah, I mean, I, get, I think you know what it is. I think it's the I think it's a name value. I think we've, we've been spoiled the last couple of years when it comes to when it comes to rookies and how loaded Moto Three has been. And I think you know naturally you, you're not going to have a sexier year when it comes to name value. But we've already seen previews of what these guys can do. Foggy has again has been fantastic in his in his wild card appearances in the World Championship, as has Masia, who. Again, shocked the world at Austria, given how good he was Set there. Record. Set a lap record in the process. It was incredible around there. Um, yeah, so, you know, yeah, on paper, it may not look quite as good as previous years, but if, if, if these rookies can adapt well, they're going to be super good very quickly in Moto3 next year. There's going to be some opportunities there. I, I think the field that's left over isn't as strong as previous. I mean, you're losing a top contender in Mir, who was fantastic, record-breaking, Last year, you know, Fanati has been a perennial top contender in the series as well. There's going to be opportunities for guys like Foggia to step up in here. I, there's a good chance he could pull off some very strong results. Mm, yeah, there were also a couple of standout performances worth mentioning from that final round of the CEV, the Moto3 Junior World Championship. One of them is Mark Garcia, who is the 
first ever Super Sport 300 World Champion, who was making his debut in the CEV yeah. Moto3 Junior World Championship um, with the Max Racing Team. Uh, if you're wondering why it's called the Max Racing Team, it's because it's owned by a man surnamed Bianchi. Um, so it's a pretty well-run ah. team. Um, but uh, Mark Garcia on his debut finished the first race of the weekend in 18th, which doesn't sound necessarily all that great, but when you mentioned that the bike he was riding was a Mahindra, it kind of puts that into some perspective. He was the second Mahindra home, um, only beaten by Raul Fernandez, who was riding for the factory Mahindra Aspar team. Um, so a good start to life in the CEV for Garcia, who will be riding there full-time next year for Biaggi's very own Max Racing Team. And the other performance worth mentioning was the Britain Tom Boudemos, who dominated this year's British Motostar Moto3 Championship. He was also mm-hmm. making his debut in the CEV for the British Talent Team, which will be racing there regularly next oh. year. And he finished in 16th, just outside the points on his debut uh, weekend, which uh, might not, again, sound all that good. But given that this was a Moto3 field, which was so big that they had to have a last chance race to earn the final spots on the grid, it was so, yeah. it was so well entered. Um, finishing 16th out of a weekend which NC saw more than 50 bikes entered uh, for that race weekend was some going. So well done to Tom Uthamos who will be racing in the CEV regularly next year for the British talent team in the Moto3 Junior World Championship. Uh, now other news to bring you and we're going to move on to testing news now. Um, because testing has been taking place all week this week, all five days, all five weekdays of this week at Hareth. It's a test that's combined MotoGP, World Superbike, and a few BSB runners, all on the same circuit at the same time. Um, if only Dawn or somebody else televised this, it would make fantastic viewing, wouldn't it? Right. Uh, <laughs> if this was ever televised. Um, and if you think back to last year, when we were talking on this show, back in our downforce days, when we remember Jonathan Ray outpacing all of the MotoGP runners on the same day, and remember talking about how much of a statement that was for the season that was going to follow. Well, guys, he's done it again. It, guys, this is this is a problem. This is a serious friggin' problem. Um, he's done it again. Um, and I yeah, this no is a stronger field he's beaten. Yeah, there, there's some real heavy hitters out there like Lorenzo and Ianoni. And yes, I, I will get this out of the way now. There is a bunch of asterisks to consider here. Yes, qualifying tires. Yes, other runners had run similar lap times on previous days and. Listen, they're prototypes, okay? They're designed to be the best of the best, okay? This is mighty impressive. Jonathan Ray, um, he's doing exactly what he did last year, just uh, just ridiculous pace. Um, again, even in race trim, he'd be up there with, with, with the very, very best. Like, there is merit to what no, not only Kawasaki has done as a bike, but as Jonathan Ray as a rider, he is he is a country mile ahead of anybody else in, 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 the, in the category. If he's running his bike right now as a super bike, to be able to run consistent race pace with, you know, good upper midfield level MotoGP riders. Don't tell me he can't walk into that class and immediately be a top contender. The guy is a fantastic friggin' rider. And I don't know what more he has to do to prove that to something. Because I know people were very quick to point out, you know, those 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 asterisks like the qualifying tire and whatnot. Listen, it's mighty impressive no matter which way you slice it. Yeah. Um, that is that is that, that would have put him on pole position for the MotoGP race earlier this year, um, yeah. when essentially they're running at full chat with the softest tires that they have on offer as well. Um, yes. So, so that is a fast time, um, whatever way you look at it. Um, and it, 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 it was a second inside the outright World Superbike lap record. Um, that they set earlier this year. Of course, World Superbike won't be going to Hareth next year, um, so we won't see um, him match or beat those times next year. Um, but, yeah, I remembered uh, thinking um, this week that, you know, you never know, maybe 
you know, this week will be the signs of something interesting where, you know, the field will be a little bit closer to Kawasaki next year. Oh, jeez, Jonathan Ray's in the 137s uh, at this yeah. season test, um, which is incredible. And when you even factor in the fact that on race rubber or in race trim with a race rubber and a race setup, Jonathan Ray did a 138.8. Um, which is as fast as anything anyone else did on a quality tyre. And if that doesn't even make you in tears already, if you're a fan of anyone other than a Kawasaki, they were already running at the maximum rev limit imposed by the 2018 technical regulations of 14,100 RPM. So that was a rev-limited ZX-10R that Jonathan Ray did a 37.9 with. (laughs) Guys, why are we even bothering for the next season? Start carving title number four. Who's going to beat this guy? Unless they tell guys like, yeah, run it at 6,000 RPM. Just, yeah, to, give them just, just for shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah, give them a ZX6 uh, to run next year um, and see how they get on. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's terrifying how, how good they're going and how happy both of their riders were um, this weekend. Um, and that includes Tom Sykes, who, who was very, very quick as well. He was just three tenths down on Jonathan Ray uh, um, on uh, the uh, timings today, as we recall this Friday. Um, and it's one of those where even if Jonathan Ray wasn't out there, Tom Sykes' 138.3 matches pretty well with anything a MotoGP rider did this week. Absolutely. Um, which is pretty scary for the rest of the field as well. Um, and Tom Sykes, perhaps, from the, the interviews that I've listened to, um, and by the way, you can listen to them all if you uh, take advantage of the uh, Black Friday offer on the uh, World Superbike website, you can get the video pass for the full winter for just one euro. So get on that now, motorcycle fans. Shameless plug. Get on it Shameless. now. It's well worth <laughs> it because um, you get all the back catalogue of former races to watch as well. So um, so get on that now um, if you can. Um, but Tom Sykes was interviewed on there and he was very, very happy with his, his week's work. Um, and surprisingly, was pretty much pretty scathing of how he'd done this year. We've already covered the World Superbike campaign of 2017. Um, and Tom Sykes basically saying that his performances this year didn't cut it and how he wants to do much better next year, which, you know, I admire the sentiment that he still believes that he can try and take the fight to Jonathan Ray um, later um, into next year. Um, because based on this testing form, he's perhaps the only guy that's got the package capable of doing it. Um, into next season, so we kind of hope he does make more of a fight of it next year. Mm. Um, and what was also interesting, Dre, was Tom Sykes basically saying that how they're obviously trying to adapt to these new regulations and a new way of riding for next year. Um, but he kind of talked about how they're looking to unlock the old speed again, was I think pretty much how he phrased it in that. Mm. Um, he said that this year, um, and we remembered speaking at the start of the year, how he changed his style and wanted to try and get more out of the bike in race trim and almost sacrifice a bit of that blistering one lap pace. It almost sounds as if Tom Sykes is trying to go back to basics and try and go back to being the Tom Sykes that won a world title in 2013. It's interesting. Um, yeah, for what it's worth, I've I talked about this off the air a little bit. I said the sentiment reminded me a lot of when Raymond Van Barneveld lost to Michael Van Gogh at the World Darts Championship last year. And like, like Van Gogh averaged the highest ever average at a world title match in 114. Barney averaged 110, lost 7-2 in sets, and acted like the man was about to retire. Like, oh, this isn't good enough. And I'm like, dude, you averaged 110. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 do you know what you're dealing with here? You're dealing with a freak. Um, and this is sort of the same deal with Sykes, where it's like, he was very harsh on himself, but I don't think it's entirely his fault. I mean... The, 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 the way it's, the way it is right now it's like it's it's harsh on himself but I guess he kind of has to be because that's what he has to do to beat this dude right now and he's he's, he's clearly going you know quite a ways to try and 
you know, find a way to get you up there. Can't for effort. He's still trying to find new ways to try and bridge that gap, even after three years of being to. pulverized by him. Yeah, he has to at this point. He hasn't got a choice now. It's like, like simply right now, what he's doing isn't good enough, and he has to go experiment and you know find find ways of pushing the needle out. So I, you know, what he wouldn't normally do but because but it tells us that this is a guy. Even after three years of being pulverized by his teammate, he's not happy and he's not prepared to accept a number two role, is he? Right. He still wants to win this title and be you know, beating one of the best field by riders we've ever seen in order to try and do it. And, you know, it's a big ask, but Sam Sykes is ready for the challenge. Mm, yeah, and let's hope he's up for the challenge next season. <laughs> we might be counting on him um, to give us an exciting season in 2017 based on testing um, this week. Yamaha also went pretty well, it has to be said, this week. In testing, Alex Lowe's um, also did a lap time that measured pretty well against MotoGP opposition uh, today. Friday, Alex Lowe's was seventh quickest on a 138.6. Um, which put him ahead of MotoGP runners, including Bradley Smith, Scott Redding, Jack Miller, um, and uh, Southern Gatoli and Eugene Laverty, who, of course, are World Superbike riders, but were running on MotoGP bikes as test riders uh, for Suzuki and Aprilia, respectively. So uh, the lap times of the Yamahas in testing matched up pretty well, too, as they look to close the gap next year and take on uh, the big two of Kawasaki and Ducati. Now, Jonathan Ray only ran on three of the five days this week um, because he didn't run on Tuesday. That was because he had a pretty important date, a royal date, a royal appointment, we might say, because on Tuesday, Dre, he went back to um, the United Kingdom to collect his MBE. Um, welcome recognition for Jonathan Ray and indeed for his sport, um, a sport that Jonathan Ray is a very, very um, welcome ambassador for. Um, and it's wonderful, I think, to see a guy who's basically been at the top of his game and the best in the world in his field for the last three years received this kind of recognition. Absolutely. Um, this is a, this is a great, great moment for motorsport. And I'm glad that like he's, his, his tweet mentioned has been liked nearly 5,000 times. Um, yeah, he, he again. It's it's a fantastic moment for motorsport in general that a guy has been recognised with you know royal honours um, from from the office and from the Duke of Cambridge. Shout out to shout out to Will. Um, but, uh, yeah, this he's, he's he, he is a, he's a fantastic ambassador for World Team Bikes, you know, for motorsport in general. He's done a tremendous job. Um, still pushing for that World for Sports Personality of the Year nomination. BBC, get on that mm. for God's sake. But. Um, yeah, like like for World Superbikes, which uh, it's easy to forget, it, it it does not have the prolific profile that it had in this country twenty years ago when it was Carl Fogarty. But hey, if Fogarty can win in the jungle, then maybe there is a little bit of hope out there for us yet. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, but congratulations again, Jonathan. Again, a, a more than deserved title for the hard work he's put in to try and put the series back on the map with his dominance. And, uh, yeah, fantastic MBE. So congratulations to him. And, again, a wonderful moment for him and the sport in general. Yeah, if you haven't, by the way, if you don't follow Jonathan Ray on Instagram, make sure you do, not least because his stories are very entertaining, including the one last week where his, uh, his young son was learning to ride a bike um, and looking very, very good in it already, uh, going over motocross jumps and uh, and the like. So, um, yeah, there's another Ray on the, on the way up as well in the future. Um, but he uploaded three three images from uh, his uh, his date, uh, um, his royal appointment back at Buckingham Palace on Tuesday, um, including the image of him shaking hands with the Duke of Cambridge. And you could just see the pride on his face. You could just see how much that, that honour means to him. Um, I, I, I just, it defies me. I mean, we spoke earlier on about his, his spat with Chaz Davis back at Aston. It defies me how anyone can't like this guy. 
because um, of just how a nice guy he is. He said on Instagram, it was an incredible experience to receive the MBE from the Duke of Cambridge. The ceremony at Buckingham Palace was so nice, it's something I'll remember forever. To be with so many other amazing people in those surroundings, receiving their own honours was really special. Being awarded this award outside of my sport, it makes me so proud of what I have achieved, and also to be held in the same esteem as Joey Dunlop and Carl Fogarty means an awful lot to me. I was really lucky to be joined by my wife Tash and mum and dad in the audience to witness the presentation. They have been so supportive of everything I've done and achieved, so I am super happy that they can be part of this day as well. Congratulations to Jonathan Ray, MBE. Um, as if he doesn't have it all already. He now even has an MBE to go with his three Superbike World Championships. Um, other news from the World Superbike paddock now, though, and World Supersport news to uh, look ahead to next year. Um, and we mentioned in previous shows how Calliar Racing had signed the Belgian Loris Cresson for their team which meant that one of their two current riders was out of the door. We now know where one of them is going um, because Nicky Tooley has signed this for the CIA Landlords Insurance team, um, the Honda team who lost to Jules Clazel. And to be fair to them, Dre, if they've lost Jules Clazel to the Nerds team for next year, um, there aren't many better hires out there than Nicky Tooley. Nerds! Sorry, had to do it. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. I mean, like, Nicky Tooley has got all the potential in the world. He's a guy that, that has won races, can win races, uh, you know, ran up there with, with, with the best of them um, in, you know, in, in, world, in World Super Sport this year. Like, of all the guys available that aren't tied down already, that, that could very well be the best guy on the board to take. So, yeah, that's a great hire for Nicky Tooley. You know, again, another really solid team they're going to build. Again, it's a one-bike team, so they'll build all around him. And they're, and they're going to push hard for this. So, um, yeah, all for it. Great move to get Nicky Tooley in. Yeah, he'll be uh, a rider worth watching next season. As Dre mentioned, uh, took his first win this year uh, in the World Supersport Championship back at Magni Cor. So, he's a... He is a fast young rider, a fast young Finn, as if they don't have enough of them already in motorsport these days. Um, Tooley's another, so um, keep an eye out for him next season. Um, in CIA Landlords Insurance, Honda Colors. Um, more news, though, from the British scene, um, because a lot of news is broken this week, understandably, given that it's been Motorcycle Live this week at the NEC in Birmingham. Um, a number of BSB teams finalising their plans for next year, including the FS3 Kawasaki team, who've signed the reigning Superstock 1000 champion Danny Buchan. Uh, to their team for next year with Lee Jackson also joining the team but joining them to race in Superstock 1000 which surprised me Dre given that Lee Jackson tasted his, po his first podium in BSB earlier this year a podium and his BSB dropping down to the Superstock 1000 class strange one yeah, it's still a strange one. I mean, he still had that fantastic second place at Cadwell Park in the middle of in the middle of the season. Um, yeah, all, a, a very very strange decision for me on that one because Jackson, you know, was was really starting to find his feet in the series. Um, and, you know, a guy that you know could get into the, you know, the top six or seven on a good day. Um, and he's, he's stepping down. It reminds me a lot of Richard Cooper going down and going down to the Superstock 1000 class for a minute and then coming back up again. Um, speaking, yeah, of which, speaking of which, yeah. Richard Cooper has joined the British Superbike Championship once oh, again for this season. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we planned it. Um, Cooper is joining the Bill Bay Suzuki team alongside Bradley Ray with Billy McConnell going the other way to Superstock 1000. He's joined the uh, Bill Bay Suzuki team um, to race in Stock 1000. And it has to be said, Dre... Um, I mean, British Superbikes is so stacked anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But I kind of fancy this as a bit of a dark horse team for next year for the Suzuki team, who um, have now got a year's experience with the bike. It's now won a race late in the year, courtesy of Gintoli and Assen. We've already seen how quick Bradley Ray can be. And Richard Cooper, last time he was in the British Superbike Championship, he was knocking on the door of the showdown. Absolutely. Like, um, no, no, no question about it. Um, 
But yeah, um, like Cooper was... Yeah, I like this team a lot. Bradley Ray is a great team leader to have. I know he's very well backed from his, from, from his dad in that team there. And again, proven to be very, very strong towards the end of last season. Challenging for wins in leading groups. He's gonna, he's only going to get better as time goes on. And as, we, as you mentioned, Cooper was very good last year when he needed to be. So... Yeah, like Cooper had real moments of real greatness up there as well. So he can run up the front in BSB as well. It's a good team. Again, the bike seems to have turned the corner um, towards the end of last season with more Suzuki back in. So, yeah, this this is a real dark horse team for me. This is a team that could definitely win some races and surprise me. Like Bradley Ray should be thinking showdown next season as a minimum target for me because like if he can keep that end of 2016 form going in 2017 form going into next year then he's going to be one to watch for next season for sure it's a very good team overall if you ask me yeah i agree and i think if he continues that rate of improvement there'll be a number of british and indeed maybe world teams looking at bradley ray and saying name your price uh, for a contract because oh, yeah. this kid is going a long way in the future um believe you me um more news of british super sport this time and a friend of the show um, has confirmed his spot in the British Super Sport class next year. James Rispoli, the Rocket, who hey. um, this year rode in the Stock Thousand Championship and uh, it's bad to say didn't enjoy the greatest of seasons, uh, having ridden in BSB for the first time last year. Um, next year, he'll be in the British Super Sport class, a class that he knows and a class that he's won in before. Um, so we look forward to seeing how Rispoli gets on next year with the ever-quip Yamaha team, um, an international flavour team with the American Rispoli partnered by the South African Bjorn Estimates. Um more news from the British Championship and a new class entering next year on the BSB support bill. We already told you how there is essentially going to be a Supersport 300 class in BSB next year um, with the new junior Supersport class. There's also going to be essentially a British Moto2 Championship next season with the introduction of British GP2, snappily titled, if nothing else, uh, joining next season as BSB continues to try and bring itself in line with both the MotoGP and World Superbike championship programs with uh, ch corresponding championships so a good move from BSB we already saw uh, a few Moto2 bikes entering in BSB this season and winning races um, although they weren't homologated so they didn't score points and weren't officially credited with victories but they were winning on track so um, there's already been a bit of a toe dipped in the water for Moto2 uh, on the British Championship and next year for the first time there will be a prototype class a prototype Moto2 class um, in the British support class with a British DP2 championship uh, one other rider who's confirmed his place on the grids next year is Kyle Ride. He's a rider that knows Supersport all too well. Uh, he rolled in World Supersport this year. He's heading back to British Source to ride in British Superbikes this year. Uh, next year, should I say, with the CF Motorsport team. It's a brand new team to BSB next season. They'll be running a Yamaha R1, um, which has already shown it can Ooh. be competitive in the uh, British Superbike Championship with the McCams team and the Anvil Hire team. Um, Josh Brooks nearly slipping through the back door to win the championship. Um, and Kyle Ride, who... Started the season, Dre, fairly well in World Super Sport. And once Keenan Safoglu arrived to take over the team again, his performance has kind of dipped. Um, but mm. this is a guy whose talent is not in question. So let's hope for his sake that the uh, CF team and British Superbikes unlocks it again. Absolutely. I mean, I still remember like Colin Edwards asking his Twitter followers one time, like, who's the most exciting young talent in bike racing right now? And the universal name said was Kyle Ride. Um, for, for those on British Shore. So, yeah, the potential is most definitely there. We've seen it countless times. The talent is there. That's not the question. I think it's more a case of getting the right support at this stage in his career. Uh, like, where's the next level going to come from? And this is a big step up for Carl Ryan. You know, the big boy, 1,000cc, 
super bikes now about that and the, and the Yamaha R1, which is a proven race level winning bike by any measure. So we're gonna we're gonna get a yardstick on how good car ride is quite quickly. Mm. Um, and it's gonna be hard for him to stand out, given again we talked about Bradley Ray a minute ago, like leading the charge for young talent in this class with Jake Dixon. Um, and Luke Mossy right behind him, all guys 25 or under who are very strong riders indeed. Um, so the way it's going right now, he's, he's got like you know he's he's got he's got some work to do in this series. But you know if if he really is the guy we think he is, then this this should be right up his alley. One last piece of news before we move on to our British Superbikes season review, um, and this news really took us all by surprise when it was announced earlier on Friday. Um, because we were all looking forward to Moto2 next year and the six manufacturers on the grid. Um, turns out, Dre, we're back down to five again. Suter have pulled the plug. Yeah, yeah this was a shock. Um, I'm stunned that Suter's just, just pulled. I mean, this is a team that won that won world titles with Stefan Bradl and with Mark Marquez on bikes. Like, like Suter, well, not too long ago, was great. And sadly, only, I think, one victory on said Suter in the last four years, that was Dominique Agate, if you remember, at the Saxon Ring. I was going to say, in they won this year, and it was stripped from them. Yeah. Uh, God damn you, Kiefer. Um But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, the, it, the team, had, the, the chassis manufacturer had gone into decline. There was no, there was, that was obvious to Calix, you know, would put the foot on the throat for the series, really. And, you know, on top of that as well, um, KTM basically being the hot new mistress that's come along and it's like every team is going to jump on the wagon thinking, hey, this might be the Calix beater, having seen what might be. Go to the Vera, like basically, they got, KTM's got to pay him a lot more money because they basically, him, he and he and Binder have gotten them a lot of extra customers. Let's put it that way. Um, proof, yeah, the proof of the pudding is on track. They've been very strong all year long. Miguel with three wins to his name. And of course, that, that late resurgence at the end of the season for, for that hat trick and for Binder being on the podium. Um, yeah, like they, they've bought a lot of new customers and, they've, and they're now the new hot, chassis provider for the series and Suter has fallen by the wayside and by the looks of it they were only going to get Dynavolt for next year and you know yeah because that they, uh, the keeper team the keeper team dropped them in favor of the KTMs for next year um very very mm. late in the day so uh yeah it almost is as if Suter saw the dominance of Calix and the emergence of KTM and thought nah you're all right <laughs> we don't want any part of this anymore um it's not worth spending the money on it so they've they've pulled out um, and um, yeah, as far as what that where that leaves the uh, Dynavolt team, because they're in the absolute doodah now after this news, we don't quite know yet, um, because they're essentially left with an entry next year with Xavi Vierke and Marcel Schrotter and no bikes to race with. Um, so mm. we'll have to wait and see who, um, well, basically what the future shows for that team, whether another manufacturer lets them in or whether they essentially have to pull the plug. We'll have to wait and see on that one. We'll bring you news on that on future shows when that is all settled out. But for now, it's time to review the British Superbike season of 2017. And we will start at Donington Park right after this. review the British Superbike season of 2017 starting at Donington Park for the first round of the season and 
uh, a Caesar Dread that started without its champion, um, Shaky Burn, who um, went into it having won his fifth world, uh, fifth British Superbike title in 2016, um, late in the season, having dominated the second half of that campaign. Um, but his season didn't get out of the starting blocks in Donington because of a concussion on race morning. Indeed, um, Sunday morning warm-ups. What all, what happens all of a sudden? Oh. Like go like like shaky goes down the Kramer curve. Suffers a concussion. Doesn't take part the whole weekend. Um, so all of a sudden, <laughs> it opened the door for Leon Hasen to basically give a fifty-point regular season head start, as you do. <laughs> yeah, head start and that uh, ten podium points into the bargain as well for, for Leon Haslam, uh, who took the double victory. Um, second behind him in that first race was his teammate Luke Mossy with uh, Josh Brooks back in the series after that ill-fated year with the Milwaukee BM in World Superbikes, finishing second for the Anvil Higher Tag Yamaha team. Back on the right that he won the championship with uh, two years prior. Um, a strong start to the season then for Haslam. Um, Shaky Burn would return to action for the second round at Brands Hatch on the Indy circuit, um, but would crash out of that first race. Um, a round that your, uh, your, your particular host, Andre Harrison, was attending um, race uh, round two of the season. Um, and Dre actually got to see a piece of history. The first two wins for young Luke Mossy, who um, was the emerging star of 2016, where he just missed out um, on the showdown, won the Riders' Cup, looked a very, very impressive young rider as well. And at this stage of the season, Dre, with his double win at Brands Hatch and his podiums in the first two rounds, Luke Mossy was the early pace setter. Yeah, Luke Mossy, I'm pretty sure, was leading the championship after those four rounds, um, those four races. Yeah, it was it was an incredible, incredible start to the season for Mossy. But yeah, highlighted by those double victories, the, the only two wins Mossy had all season long. But it was really the coming of age moment for Luke Mossy there that he was able to, to win both races, win them fairly comfortably. And yeah, wasn't really challenged in either race by, by his teammate or anybody else for that matter. Um, yeah, Mossy went out of his way and just dominated, really. Yeah, two wins for him. Um, to go with his second and fifth in the opening <laughs> round. Um, Luke, uh, Leon Haslam, his teammate, followed him in second in race one before um, dropping behind Christian Iden to third in the second race of the weekend. And as you mentioned, Luke Mossy was the early pace setter at this stage of the season. Shaky Burn finally getting on the board uh, with fourth position um, at Brands Hatch. Um, just 13 points for him from the first two weekends and no podium points um, to go with that. Um, as Haslam and uh, Mossy on the JG Speedbeat Kawasaki's made the early running. Uh, third round on Bank Holiday Weekend at Alton Park, though, saw Shaky finally join the winner's circle with victory in race two to go with Haslam's win in race one. Um, but to be fair to, to Leon Haslam, Dre, his season very nearly um, ended rather abruptly at Alton Park. How on earth, even now, and we're talking now, again, six, seven months on, how on earth he escaped that race two crash with James Ellison with that injury, I will never know. What the hell was that? Um, <laughs> it, it was one of the most ridiculous. Because I remember, I remember like, I was watching that race live as it happened, and they were on board with Leon Haslam as it happened. It was terrifying. Yeah, Ellison's bike essentially just packed up straight in front of him. Yeah, packed up straight in front of him. Haslam gets flung over the top and basically rides into Ellison's rear end at 160 miles an hour. Um. Yeah. This is this, this. was a problem. Um. Haslam got flung. It was like it was like it was catapulted off that bike. Basically, it was an awful accident. I'm surprised the race wasn't red flagged. To be honest with you, mm. um, it was 
it was it was just it was a massive accident. I mean, uh, bless Ellison who. You know, his bike had packed up about you know, 500 yards. I mean, he like Edison ran all the way back in full levels to see if Haslam was okay because he knew it was a bad one from the moment uh, he saw Haslam go over the top. Um, so, whew, thank goodness, basically. Um, um, both were unscathed from that. It was a hellacious accident. Not the first one Haslam would take this season, but uh, luckily, relatively okay. Mm, yeah, thankfully. Thankfully, he was okay. Um, it was a kind of becoming a feature of this early stage of the season, how the championship favourites were suffering injuries um, because uh, Leon Haslam somehow escaped that without any sort of serious injuries, but he would soon pick up injury the next time we went racing at Knock Hill for, for round four of the season. Uh, an extraordinary weekend, Dre, where three of the favourites went down injured on that weekend. Glenn Irwin suffered a heavy crash on Friday, which ruled him out of the weekend. Christian Eden, who was up in the showdown spots by this stage, did likewise as did Leon Haslam, and as I mentioned, this was the stage where Luke Mossy was really making some early headway in the British Superbike Championship, but injuries were striking hard for so many of the favourites. Yeah, it was a disastrous weekend for some of the top runners, again, in Irwin and Haslam, both taking injuries that would put them out at a weekend, um, which opened the door for a, a shaky burn double victory, and the first you know, real sighting for Josh Brooks all season, along with you know two second places that weekend as well, so yeah, uh, whew, my word. Um, a lot of potential danger uh, where that was concerned for title contenders. And yeah, a, a, a very eye-opening weekend with a lot of top runners who would normally be up there just who just weren't in play that time around. Yeah, you're, you're around ahead of us there, Dre, with uh, with uh, that double. Because obviously it was Shaky's double came at Snetterton uh, with Josh Brooks taking the two bad. seconds. Because we're forgetting one of the breakout moments, one of the breakout stories of 2017. And who ended up did taking the double at Knock Hill? The emergence, the shock emergence of one Jake Dixon. Yeah, <laughs> Jake Dixon had arrived. How did I forget that <laughs> first time round? That was stupid of me. <laughs> uh, that's what. That's one for the inevitable bike live blooper reel. There, um, you, can, you can save that one, Lewis. Um, my bad, Jake. If you're listening, I'm really sorry, mate. Um, yeah, it was one of really the real shocks of the season. Um, brilliant, brilliant rides from Dixon and Knock Hill. Again, just out of nowhere, like out of completely nowhere this season, Dixon had They weren't, they come weren't up. flu quins either. He just basically, the, we all thought, shaky burn, struggling, Leon Haslam injured. This has got a Luke Mossy double written all over it and Jake Dixon just right. urinated all over that bonfire. Yeah, just like, let's, let's get everybody out of here. This is... Yeah, this this, this this was a shocker. Um, I, I, one of the real shocks of the racing season on two wheels, no matter which way you cut it. Dixon, it wasn't the fluke. There was no mitigating circumstances. He was just outstanding. There is no other way of looking at it. Um, just just brilliant, 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 um, completely dominant. Nobody had an answer for him. Just outstanding race racing from Dixon. And again, the real the, the, the real sign, but yeah, Dixon had arrived on the scene. Yeah, because there was no real sign. He, he had had a pretty impressive kind of under-the-radar rookie campaign in 2016 uh, in British Superbike State Dixon, although we hadn't really spotted him that much. He was quietly doing some pretty impressive things at the age of 20. Um, but there was no sign, really, that this kind of performance was coming. Um, in the first three rounds of the season, the first six races, he had had a best finish of ninth in the opening race of the year at Donington Park. And from that point, Andre, that double knock hill, Jake Dixon was a man transformed. It was like a boy becoming a man. Um, from that point on, um, where he became a regular podium contender to the point that he forced his way into the showdown. And the showdown didn't necessarily go Jake Dixon's way in the end. Um, circumstances saw him drop to sixth in the end when he perhaps deserved to be a couple of spots higher than that. 
Um, but there's no mm-hmm. question that this young man has served notice to be arguably the future of British superbike racing. Still only 21 years old, the youngest man to ever reach the showdown format, and he completely deserved it. His results were nowhere, but after the, it's like the knockhill wins gave him a, a set of confidence to really push on for the rest of that season. Um, yeah, uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Again, like in the top tens, regular podiums and top six finishes throughout the rest of the season. It was no fluke. Dixon has arrived on the scene and. I mean, he's, he's going to be one that Kawasaki's going to be keeping an eye on for years to come. On that, you know, he's running for the RAF reserves team at the moment. But uh, oh boy, um, Dixon to make the top six and probably should have been a little bit higher up that board. Given again, he, he had a couple of DNFs on the final round. Uh, Brand Hatch, including the race where he didn't even get to start race one on that one. But I, I remember the, we we'll skip forward a little bit here. But I remember an Olsen Parker came up through the field in that race as well. Dixon had some fantastic performances that season and. Yeah, definitely. Like maybe the number one young guy to watch in the future of the sport might be Jake Dixon right yeah, now. Yeah, and uh, very much a, a dark horse, even even perhaps one of the favourites for the British Superbike Championship next season. Because I remember when Alex Lowe's made his emergence. Um, Bex will know even better than me um, when he made his emergence around 2011-2012 time and put in some incredible performances and forced his way into the showdown late in 2012. Um, didn't quite happen for him the showdown. He was still a little inexperienced. It was his first year in the showdown, but then the next year he came back and won the whole thing. Um, in that final round shootout with Shaky Burns. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see if Jake Dixon does a similar thing next year. But I think the, the floodgates are open for this kid now and um, he's only going to get better. He's, as Dre mentioned, still only 21. Um, so just wait and see how good he's going to be in two, three, four years' time. He's surely going to be a world superbike rider of the future. If he wants to be, of course, he might end up being a Moto2 rider of the future because he's done quite a lot of testing in recent uh, rounds. And, of course, he wildcarded back at Silverstone earlier in the year. Um, on to Snedderton and as Dre... Um, kind of forecasted for you it was a shaky burn double um ahead of two second places for josh brooks on the humble higher yamaha and two thirds for jason o'halloran um who was pretty much making himself a fixture in the showdown and um we we might as well mention them now because when we get to the showdown um jason o'halloran didn't really feature that much even though he did make it um but we saw o'halloran regularly up in the top six forces went to the showdown and dan limfoot finally right. taking wins this year as bad as Honda's World Superbike campaign was with the new Fireblade, the British Superbike team emerges from this season with nothing but credit. Absolutely. I mean, that, that again, a brand new bike, limited time to prepare themselves, but O'Halloran was able to make it competitive right from the start. I mean, got better and better as the year went on. This, this is the sort of time where he peaked with the double podium at Snetterton. This was about the highlight of, of a Halloran season, really. Um, they were able to make that bike competitive. Linfoot obviously going down the road. Linfoot would go on to finally break his duck and get a pair of wins as well. One of, the, um, you know, one of them being the last round of the regular season. One of them, a showdown victory at Alton Park, even though he wasn't in there, basically playing lead spoiler um, as well. So, yeah, Honda... Yeah, the world the world team with Red Bull and Tenkarte didn't work out, but the the BSB team, the Honda Racing team in British Superbikes, were absolutely stunning. And yeah, like to, to turn that bike from where it was to get it to the point where they were winning races um, before the end of their first season was a stunning job, and they deserve a lot of credit for that one. Yeah, they do, and um, they are both targeting the title next year. I'll in foot on Halloran, so um, they obviously expect that Honda with a year's data and a year's experience. Um, of all the British tracks and hopefully some development too, that they're going to be right up the sharp end again uh, next year. Um, having taken his first double of the year at Stetson Shaky, will go on to double up again 
at Brands Hatch for the next round of the championship um, around the Grand Prix circuit this time where Shaky Byrne took a brilliant double um, with Dan Lumfoot following him home in second in race one, um, a race where he was cruelly robbed of victory, really, where he lost the lead to Shaky Byrne moments before the red flags came out, um, and Shaky Byrne was handed victory as a result of it. So uh, Lumfoot still at this point having very little luck, although, as you know, it would soon turn for him. Um, and in the second race of the weekend, Shaky Bird holding off James Ellison, who was making a bit of a pig's ear of trying to force his way into the showdown with a very fast motorcycle, um, who was um, mm. having DNF after DNF. By this point, Ellison had already had six DNFs um, in the first 12 races of the season. So that was a pretty uh, neat way of explaining how Ellison's showdown spot uh, kind of passed him by. Um, but the story really here was Shaky Dre, who'd won four races in a row. And it's amazing to think, we kind of thought at that stage that it was 2016 all over again. Shaky Bone and Ducati were just going to dominate. But astonishingly, mm. that victory in race two at Brands would be Shaky's last win for 11 races. Uh, yeah, just this, this was mind blowing that, you know, Ducati, uh, Shaky Burn, and Paul Burn and able to turn a bike that didn't have prolific success at BSB level into a perennial race win and obviously a championship winning bike last year. Um, he'd won four in a row, and you're thinking, uh oh, Shaky's turned up the wick, here we go again. And no, it just didn't happen for him until really the final round no, of the championship. That was when he next win a race. Exactly. So, yeah, you know, just just your season was just sputtering and sputtering as the year went by. Uh, Silverstone was a disaster, you know, crashed in race two at Cadwell. Froxton didn't work out, didn't get any podium credits there either. The only real blessing for him was that Leon Haslam, who was you know, at, at the time up there as his main threat for the season, also was going through a, pat, uh, a patchy run of form, um, including four straight DNFs to go into the showdown rounds. And Haslam was thinking... I've got to press the reset button on this season because it had all gone to crap for him. So, yeah, it was a it was a real sputtering time for both of the two main contenders. Yeah, we were kind of Enter Josh Brooks. Yeah, yeah, we were kind of <laughs> waiting for someone to really step up and make a real play for this championship. Josh Brooks did that at Thruxton with his first win of the season um, and first win since returning to BSB, the first ever win, of course, for the Amble Hire team. Uh, in the British Superbike Championship. Congratulations to them. Of course, Thruxton was a weekend. We were expecting Shaky to dominate on, um, given how it seemed to really suit the Ducati. It didn't on this occasion, uh, with Josh Brooks taking the win in race one. And in race two, we saw another emergence, another surprise contender um, for not just the, the race victories, but for the championship. Because Peter Hickman, who'd been so consistent so far, finished every single race in the top nine, suddenly stepped forward at Thruxton with a second and a first and fired himself right into title contention. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, this wasn't the plan. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. It came, couldn't have come at a better time for him. And yeah, Pete Hickman, who had been Mr. Consistency pretty much all season long, um, in, to that point, had not finished a race outside of the top 10. And all of a sudden, found another gear, taken 45 points out of Thruxton, and was like, oh, hi, Hickman's a title contender now. Good to see. Yeah. Um, came out of nowhere. But yeah, Hickman was yeah, Hickman was right up there again. So uh, yeah, it was a, a real, like, uh, again, a coming of age moment for Hickman, his first BSB series victory. And uh, yeah, all of a sudden, the, the Little Smiths team who could, all of a sudden, was a, it was in there for title contention. Yeah, it was, because he followed that up with a fourth and a third at Cadwell Park as well. Um, it's pretty mm -hmm. much rubber stamp his spot in the show, and even with Silverstone still to go, 
uh, Hickman was looking very good. Um, at this stage, we still had nine riders who were going for six showdown spots, um, with Shaky mm-hmm. Burns and Leon Haslam all but assured of a showdown spot. Um, Josh Brooks, um, despite that win at Thruxton, um, followed that up with a crash in the second race, which kind of undid all his hard work in that first race and left him still with a pretty precarious place in that top six. Um, Hickman was looking good. O'Halloran was looking good. Um, and we had the likes of Jake Dixon, Christian Eden, who'd recovered from that injury but had missed four races um, after that crash at Knockhill. Both Knockhill and Snetterton, uh, he defaulted. Um, Luke Mossy, who suffered an injury at Thruxton, which really put his championship hopes um, in some doubt while he was leading it at the time, and then suffered that horrendous crash on the start of finish straight at Thruxton, which left him to miss that round. And we also had James Ellison, um, who I mentioned earlier on, finished second at Brand Hatch, but spent most of his season either crashing or breaking down. Um, we finally got a glimpse straight at Cadwell Park of what James Ellison was capable of with a brilliant victory in that second race of the weekend, which makes his failure to make the showdown all the more baffling. It's going to be one where Ellison's going to be sitting back thinking, God, I didn't even win the paperweight. No. But uh, also on top of that, yeah, just just the sort of season where you just sit back and you go, oh boy, this again. He had the pace um, to win it all. He did. He absolutely did. He had enough pace on many occasions where I feel like he could have easily been a top-tier contender and, and gone the whole way. Um just too many mechanical errors. And, you know, just to be honest, a little bit of shoddy workmanship from the McCams team on his end as well, where maybe just it's just that uh, you know it, it, it didn't work out on that one. And yeah. I remember the one at Brands Hatch Indy where again the chassis they didn't find the chassis problem. The chassis was cracked on that one, and that didn't work out either. Yeah, but his, his showdown yeah. spot finally did the um, mathematically disappear when it broke down on him at Silverstone as well. Uh, in that first race of the weekend, and it, it almost it does it could not be more obvious to me, Dre, um, where James Ellison feels the fault lies for this season, given that he's quite literally swapped one Yamaha team for another next year. Exactly, he's gone to he's gone to the to the Anvil Tag Team where where, where Brooks used to be. Um, we still don't know what Brooks is doing in his future next year. That's going to be interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, it's 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 a uh, it's a good fit for him. It's the same R one. Maybe a different crew might be the way to go for him. And again, the the speed was there with Edison this year. This year, he absolutely was, especially given he very nearly stole the paper we had in his hands. Um, because he, he, he got into the top five out of six of the last seven races towards the end of the year. Um, so it's, it's interesting, to say the least. Um, and Edison's got potential to do it, but we say this about Edison a lot of the time. He's, he's, he's got the tools to do it. He's just never been able to put a full season together. Maybe next year will be the year. Mm, yeah. Uh, Silverstone then brought the regular season to a close um, with, there's no other way for, no other way of describing it, a crazy weekend. Uh, at Silverstone for the triple header with the rain interfering uh, heavily um, with the action. Um, and three uh, surprising results, it has to be said. Race one um, saw the first victory for Glenn Irwin, um, another rider who might feel he could have made the showdown had injury not struck because he was one of those three riders struck down at Knock Hill. Um, he would take his first win in race one of Silverstone in wet conditions. Um, as Dre mentioned earlier on, Leon Haslam wouldn't finish a single race this weekend. Um, that was how crazy it was. Race two would go to Josh Brooks, essentially securing his showdown spot uh, in a race that Sylvain Gintoli, um could have won um, had the race not been red flagged early. Uh, Gintoli, of course, who was riding the uh, factory Suzuki in its first ever season of British Superbikes. 
And then it all went down to the final race of the weekend um, with still um, Luke Mossy, Jake Dixon and Christian Iden fighting for the final showdown spot with Byrne, Brooks, Haslam, Hickman and O'Halloran all confirmed. And I mentioned the word crazy once already, Dre. Um, this probably mm. won't win the Race of the Year award uh, in the Bike Live Awards next month, um, but it will surely win the award for the craziest and most farcical race any of us have seen in 2017. <laughs> yeah, farcical was right. I mean, I, I mentioned it on the yeah, I mean, it's not, it stopped being a race after about lap six. It, it, it basically became a matter of survival. It stopped being competitive. Linfoot was clearly going to win this race if, um, if it continued, which it did till lap 10, which was, you know, the magical two-third distance marker where they could call it early because, I mean, the conditions were atrocious out there for race three. Um, it says a lot when, when you know, it's, this might not be the best advertisement for the series if... Christian Iden, who was a top contender for the series, crashes a bike. He was the fastest man on track at the time, but he crashes in a straight line. It's uh, off. Yeah, yeah, he was on course to make yeah. the showdown too. Indeed, and that's what ultimately cost him a shot. I think a deserved spot in the top six, um, and that was an awful look for the series, given that you know it looked like it was way too dangerous. Two thirds of the field had already binned it. Luke, Luke Rossi, um, who was it, going for a showdown spot, just essentially decided this ain't worth it. Yeah, and that says a lot when a rider who still had a mathematical chance of getting in was like, you know what, a showdown spot is not worth my health. Uh, and he's just a 24-year-old guy saying this. He was, you know, hungry and a guy who probably wanted that showdown spot so badly, given he missed time already for injury. Probably, so you know, you know what, this is this is not worth it. And you know, pulled out of the race, which was probably the smart decision. It says a lot where the top five runners um, who ended up finishing this championship did not finish that race in the end. When Dan Linfoot finally got his first career. Uh, BSB victory in again shaming given the circumstances, but yeah, for for batshit crazy, this race is certainly up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably going to win. It's probably going to be nominated alongside half the world supersport races we saw this year um, for that award. Um, and it, it's a measure really of just how mature Jake Dixon was that he was the only rider of the showdown six to make it to the finish in that race, doing what he had to do, basically stepping up in the worst possible conditions to make the showdown stay to stay bike. on the bike and finish third in that race to knock Mossy out of the top six and Iden, of course, who was uh, on course to finish on the podium ahead of Dixon before he fell off. Um, and the emotion that that triggered in the RAF and regular reserves team, um, who were a, a privateer team with a um, privateer Kawasaki with a 21-year-old rider to make the showdown. It meant so much to them. And Jake Dixon made that happen with his ride in race three of Silverstone. In the very next race, he finished fourth. And it was a very, very different route to finish fourth. As Dre mentioned earlier on, he had to come from essentially the pit lane to do it um, in his first race as a showdown contender and competitor. Um, and the showdown started in kind of surprising fashion, really, based on the races that led up to that. Because as Dre mentioned earlier on, Leon Haslam had DNF'd the previous four races leading up to the showdown. Hadn't finished any of them. Yet all of a sudden, once the showdown started, Leon Haslam suddenly went back to his title-winning form at the start of the year. Absolutely. Um, Like like, like, like you said, he needed a reset. That was the exact words he said after a disastrous run of form. Goes out and takes 45 points out of 50 at Alton Park. Could have easily won both races. Didn't quite in the end get the double but certainly got that first victory. 
um, you know, in, in 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 a good amount of rounds. Like, like the last time he ran a race was race one at Cadwell between that between those points, and uh, yeah, so for 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 uh, Haslam to come back and and you know dominate that first weekend, he put himself really as as, as landslide favorite to win the title. Yeah, because Shaky Burn was having all sorts of problems. Only ninth and seventh for him in the two races at Alton Park, um, as he apparently seemed to fade out of championship contention. Um, Haslam, the only man really sticking his hand up um, to make a claim for this championship. And that continued in Assen, really, where Haslam will go on to win race one in a weekend where none of his other title contenders, Dre, even made it to Q3. Exactly. It, w- it was an unmitigated disaster for everybody else around him. Um, yeah, like Haslam, and all of a sudden was gifted a golden chance to put even more daylight in front of him and any of the other title rivals. And he did by winning race one there. Um, you know, Shaky was able to you know, put a decent limitation job on it by finishing in second. But by that point, Haslam had a race in hand with only four to play. And you know, all of a sudden, Haslam was in control of the championship. Mm. Yeah, three races or four races remaining this season, including the second race at Assen. Um, and as we mentioned earlier on, this was the first year for the brand new Suzuki GSX-R1000 Superbike in um, any kind of national or world championship. It's debut in the British Superbike Championship with a former world superbike champion, no less, riding it in Sylvain Gintoli. Um, and it's fair to say that the season had not exactly gone all that well for either team nor rider. They'd appeared to have fallen, fallen out with each other midway through the season with Bradley Ray, yeah. it's fair to say, showing up his experienced teammate um, through the mm-hmm. season. Um, but all of that was forgotten um, in race two at Aston Dre. Um, as he still with Ginter's tour finally tasted victory for the first time in 2017. Yeah, we had to go out of the UK to do it, yeah. but we got there in the end. Yeah, like the 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 Aston showpiece round was where was where Ginter's came out. So yeah, it was fantastic, and it was a uh, it's worth mentioning the Aston weekend was probably the best. All season was fantastic and you know really really captivating and how we got there um the inters winning the race again a real price brought over a new swing arm for, for both their bikes and it was no coincidence that all of a sudden they were right there looking competitive and up the front bradley ray in race two we were in that leading group as well for for moments as well it was no coincidence suzuki were just much better at that point in time so yeah, when they got there it, it all worked out in the end and yeah a, a great win for Ginters. Yeah. um uh, a real testament to the hard work he had to put in because Suzuki were not where they needed to be. And, but yeah, they got there in the end. And a testament to how competitive and how just how strong this championship is now, Dre. I mean, we're kind of going through it. I mean, it's very difficult in a, in a class where there were 29 riders who scored a point this season. Um, it's very, very difficult mm. in, a, in a very short season review over the course of 35, 40 minutes to cover them all. Um, but a testament to how strong this season has been, Dre, that Solomon Gintoli was the 10th different winner this season. Absolutely, ten winners. I mean, BSB is as, as a, a, a tinge of unpredictability all year long, but that is an incredible number and a, an incredible testament to the series that you know so many guys can win. I mean, we got a bunch of other guys that had podium finishes as well, like O'Halloran. Um, you know, the, the, the guys that are in there in the mix for wins as yeah, well. Bradley Ray showing up as was the end of the season as well. Yeah, I think I think it was sixteen different guys on the podium as well, as well as ten different race winners. The guys like Michael Laverty. Oh, no, sorry, sorry, not actually, sorry, Hopkins had a podium yeah, in Lamity there. Yeah, had and... one at Silverstone, you're right. Um, Lee, Lee Jackson had one um, back at Cadwell Park. Um, yeah. yeah. It was incredible. We had um, 
Christian Eden, who had multiple podiums, but never quite tested a win, nor did O'Halloran, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, it was an incredible season of, of unpredictability, and just the, the depth of quality is so strong. So strong that a, a world-class rider like Davide Giuliano turned up, Dre, and frankly only lasted basically a round and a half. Yeah, didn't yeah, basically got got to yeah, got through Donington, was you know, lower end of the top fifteen, you know, had mediocre points. Not bad for a first weekend. Didn't you know, had a bad accident in in, in Brands actually practice. I mean, probably the worst place you can crash at Brands, the inside of, of Druids. Mm. Um there's not a lot of runoff between that and the wall there. So that's probably the worst place you could possibly crash a motorcycle around there. Um but despite that um, yeah, didn't show up after that, really. I mean, he was re rehabbing an injury, but you could tell from the, the amount of time it was taken for him to come back that no matter which way you sliced it, it looked like he had some problems. Um, and there was some, there was there was bigger issues going on out there, and yeah, it turns out he didn't return. Yeah, didn't didn't fancy it. <laughs> it appeared if you uh, if you ask uh, people in the British Super Paddock, didn't fancy it on a cold Sunday afternoon at Brands Hatch. Clearly, um, for, for no. David Giuliano, who um, ended up finishing the year back in the World Superbike paddock, I think, where he was uh, much more at home, um, proving really that nothing comes easy in the British Superbike paddock, no matter how much pedigree you've got. And no weekend um, sums that up more than the finale at Brands Hatch, where we kind of thought the championship was going to come easily for Leon Haslam, who essentially had over a race's worth of points in his hand. He could have clinched the championship in the first race of three that weekend. In the end, as you know, he didn't clinch it at all. Um, and as we work our way through that weekend, Dre, um, Leon Haslam, a solid enough start to the weekend with fourth in race one. A shaky burn did what he had to do with victory in that first race. And that was really the story of the weekend. The shaky burn, as that weekend unfolded, gradually cranked up the pressure on Haslam. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the things where, like, shaky just said at the start of the weekend, I'm just going to ride for fun and see what happens. Dominates race one, takes it easy, gets gets race one. Haslam struggles, questionable tyre choice in that one, finishes in fourth. Okay, not a disaster. Haslam's got points in hand, that's fine. Shaky wins race two. Apparently that, that Haslam Kawasaki had clutch problems. He can only limp to 10th. It's on all of a sudden, folks. It's like, all of a sudden, Shaky's in contention. Brooks all of a sudden with third and fourth. Brooks has now got an outside yeah. chance as well at winning the championship as well. So all of a sudden, going into the last round, it's a three-way fight. It's a three-way fight. Uh, Haslam only has a two-point lead um, over Shaky yep. Burn going to that final round. Incredibly, uh, having given up, what, like 15 points in race two, he'd given up a further 12. So yeah, he'd given up 27 points um, in the first two races, having got into the weekend 29 ahead of Shaky Burn which led us to race three um, and an extraordinary story in this final race of the season. Brands Hatch has produced some incredible championship finales. 2011, probably the greatest race in British Superbike history. Um, 2013, with the tension of lows up against uh, Shaky Byrne. 2014, where we were denied a brilliant battle between the heavyweights of Byrne and Kianari when Kiel got injured. Um, you know, it's produced some incredible finales. Perhaps none quite like this one, uh, where Shaky Burn had to come from the front row of the grid. Haslam had to come from mid-pack, um, starting way back down on the grid. By the end of lap one, or by halfway around lap one, Haslam had managed to overtake Shaky Burn on track um, and was in <laughs> position to win the championship. He'd made an incredible start. Um, but unfortunately, Dre, on the, uh, the end of the back straight, it, it all unraveled uh, for Leon Haslam with an astonishing moment um, where... <laughs> I mean, there's no good way to lose a championship. There is only a bad way. But 
shit, Leon Haslam, he lost a championship, but he very nearly lost a whole lot more than that at the end of that back straight as his brakes quite literally gave up on him. A terrifying, and not the first time for Haslam, a terrifying 170 mile an hour brake failure. I mean, it was it was terrifying to watch him in your time. I, like, I, I, that crash, I saw people on, on my timeline who aren't normally bike fans just look in shock of, of, of that accident with Haslam. Um, yeah, just, it, it wasn't the best. Um, it was an awful accident. Haslam just about walked away from that one, and it could have been much, much worse. He had to basically jump off the bike because he knew his brakes had failed going into it, and it was basically fight or flight, and Haslam chose to take flight, very similar to Laverty's accident in, in Imola earlier this season. Just he had to jump off at 170 miles an hour, Broke his ankle um, and a couple a broken wrist as well. Like Haslam was a was a beaten and sadly defeated man at that point, and the, it, it was just the, the sum nature of it was a disastrous weekend for Haslam. None of it really being his fault, and you know just awful circumstances and just horrendous luck that robbed Haslam of you know a real you know a title that he probably should have won and. Yeah, just uh, a, a very sad end to what had been an, an epic, epic title finale. Yeah, Josh Brooks, as uh, Dre mentioned, went into that final race with a mathematical shot at the championship and very nearly snuck through the back door to win it. Um, he did win that final race of the season ahead of Jason O'Halloran and James Ellison, who finished in third place. Ellison ended up taking two podiums in that final weekend uh, of the season. Um, but at the end, it was Shaky Byrne, who cruised around in eighth place, did what he had to do to win the championship by three points um from josh brooks um and it led us to a, a moment that i think brought a, a tear to bring a tear to a glass eye it brought a tear to many eyes um of those that watched it many motorcycle racing fans many motorsport fans um for the show of sportsmanship that followed dre i mean i still cannot believe that, that this this took place not just the accident that leon haslam suffered but anyone who suffered the sheer pain of what's happened physical pain of breaking his ankle breaking his wrist um, in that accident, and the mental pain of seeing a championship ripped from his grasp for him to be then carried, literally carried over by his father and his team to go and congratulate the six-time champion, Shaky Byrne. Um, it was one of the abiding memories of this motorsport season for me. It was a wonderful moment and one that just that can only speak highly of the class and the sportsmanship. It, it, it's of... like that incident you mentioned earlier with Ellison and, and Haslam at, at Olden Park. Just the camaraderie that these riders have is, is, is quite incredible. Yeah, Haslam made a point that he wanted to congratulate Shaky on his title. There was no bitterness, no no resentment towards his team or, or anything to, to do with his, his his lost title there. He just wanted to congratulate him. And I, despite the fact he'd just been diagnosed with a broken ankle and a broken wrist and, you know, obviously beat up from what must have been an awful accident, that he still he had to be carried out by his dad and his team boss just so he could congratulate um, Shaky on, on the start-finish line as he was celebrating his sixth title. It was an incredibly noble act and one of the greatest acts of sportsmanship i've seen in bike racing ever um it was a wonderful moment i know a good friend of mine who was down there for that race alice who was there as a haslam fan and she burst into tears when she saw that and i don't blame her one bit because it was a a truly wonderful gesture and a, a perfect um way of closing the season those were the two best riders in in on, on the grid that season those two were the story of this season and 
it was it was an awful end for Haslam, but um, a real moment of redemption for Shaky, given the struggles he had earlier in this season. That was, I think, the perfect way to end it. Um, just those two arm in arm congratulating each other on what was an incredibly well played season. Just. Uh, Brilliant, brilliant Yeah, saves. brothers in arms, weren't they, at the end of the season. And, yeah, when you look at this season, both in World and British Superbikes, just the the champions that we've had in, in the two Superbike classes this year, just what great ambassadors for their sport they are in Jonathan Ray uh, and Shaky Byrne. Shaky Byrne, the, the greatest rider statistically and in probability, what everyone says, he's probably the greatest rider now in the history of the British Superbike Championship. Um, and Shaky Byrne, the first time ever, as we mentioned at the time, first time ever he has successfully defended at the British Superbike Championship, which is an extraordinary statistic given how much success he's had uh, in this championship. Uh-huh. Um, and even if this one did owe a little bit to fortune, um, he made that happen with those two race wins in races one and two of that weekend. He put the pressure on and put himself in position to take advantage of any misfortune elsewhere. Um, and, and that's what champions do. And um, Shaky Byrne, uh, in closing, Dre, um, a sensational rider, but above all else, what a tremendous ambassador he is for motorcycle racing. He is one of motorsports' true good guys. He absolutely is. Um, again, an, an ambassador for the series, an ambassador for bike racing. He's he's been like this every every everywhere he's raced. He, he's been a great guy to have as the flagship guy for your series. He, he's he's incredible on the mic. He's he's incredible on the bike, off the bike. That's the sort of guy you want speared in your series. That's exactly what he's capable of. And yeah, I can't, can't, I can't agree with that sentiment more. Yeah, we congratulate the new British Superbike champion, uh, Shane Byrne. What a Superbike season it's been with the, uh, the brilliance of Jonathan Ray uh, in the World Superbike Championship, seeing off uh, Chas Davies and Tom Sykes to win um, his third consecutive title. Three Brits dominating the World Championship and Shaky Byrne and Leon Haslam um, the best of British in the British Super Bike Championship. Congratulations to Shaky Byrne. Our commiserations to Leon Haslam after a heroic season um, to miss out at the last uh, to Shaky Byrne. That brings us to the end of episode 40 of Bike Life and our Super Bike season review. Um, don't miss next week's show, episode 41, as we review quite possibly the greatest MotoGP season of all time. Cannot wait for next week's show to break down. What a fantastic season it's been uh, in MotoGP um, in 2017. Before then, though, um, we head into episode 114 of Motorsport 101. Um, Because it's an interesting one next week, Dre, because we've got one season finishing in the Formula 1 season and another starting. Formula E season 4 is upon us. Yeah, absolutely. Formula E kicking off its fourth season in Hong Kong. Um. Yeah, as well. The, the, there's a lot of intrigue going into that series as well. No one's quite sure what's going to happen. Hashtag Bremi wins lol. But uh, we have to wait and see how that plays out. But of course, as you said, yeah, the final round of the Formula One season in Abu Dhabi. We all kind of just can't wait for it to be over. Really, I think mean, we've all been just stagnant with disappointment of how this season's played out. And I think we all just kind of want to reset. Really, so. Yeah, the final round in Abu Dhabi. To be fair, it's looking very close on times right now between Hamilton, Vettel and the Red Bulls. It, it, we could get something semi-interesting, maybe. Please, we hope. I don't think Hamilton's going to be out there to back the field up this time, though. No, um, and, that, and that, that's my fear. But um, they, we still do have a fight per second. Yay, I guess. Just episode, just episode 114 next week. We'll, we'll try and make some sense of the final round before we get into what we call review season round here. We've just got to get through this one little thing first. And 
maybe we'll get there first. But yeah, Abu Dhabi, and obviously Formula E in Hong Kong as well. Uh, episode 114 of Motorsport 101. Be there next week. Yeah, look forward to that next week. Um, as I mentioned, episode 41 of Bike Labs all next week for our MotoGP season review. Um, we cannot wait for that. We hope you join us as well around this time. Um, next weekend. Before then, though, places you can find us and follow us, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, don't forget, you can submit your questions to um, to the shows for the mailbag at motorsport underscore 101. For that, each and every week, we encourage your input. On YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 as well. Our website, motorsport101.net, where you can find the full back catalogue of all of our weekly episodes from both shows. Um, and if you want to back us financially, uh, you can do so on Patreon patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 and if you do so you will earn yourself early access to both motorsport 101 and bike live my thanks to andre harrison for joining me for this superbike season review next week we look back on the MotoGP season uh, this week though our thoughts and our congratulations go to shaky burn and jonathan ray quite literally the best of british we'll see you next week